Hello, this is Adam Drent, the creator and overall boss of Out of All Doors. This, again, is not an episode of Out of All Doors. I'm still in the process of moving, so regular episodes of Out of All Doors are still on hiatus. If this were a regular episode of Out of All Doors, I would have turned off the air conditioner you no doubt hear in the background before recording this introduction. So what is it that you're now listening to? Well, if you're one of what I have to assume are the vast majority of listeners, when you go back to re-listen to old episodes of Out of All Doors, what you often tend to do is skip everything up until the battery, listen to the battery with tears streaming down your face, and then skip everything after the battery too. So what I've done this month is edit together an enormous file of all the battery segments, one after another, from the first episode to the 22nd episode. That's two hours and 40 minutes of nothing but... The battery. You're welcome. We step into the mouth of the cave. We wind our way down through the dark passages, twisting and damp, into the bowels of the earth. We carry torches. We wear embarrassing helmets. We hear water rushing somewhere far ahead of us, far below us. The walls glitter in the torchlight. Then we round a narrow corner, one at a time, and step into an enormous cavern. We can't see the ceiling. We can't see the far wall. We sense thousands or millions of dark presences. We have entered the battery. To you, the flight path of the bat seems erratic, but it is the bug which the bat pursues whose flight path is erratic. It is the bug which the bat pursues who doesn't know how to fly normal. The bat is not too proud to adapt his flight path to match the bug's flight path so that he, the bat, may chase down and devour the bug. The bat sacrifices his dignity in order to feed, but in so doing, he imbues himself with a yet greater dignity. A wounded dignity is yet more deserving of our reverence, is it not? I think it is. Behind me, in a darkness so deep it's literally the color black, I hear a rustling, a feverish flapping. I see nothing, but I sense the movement, like a ripple across the surface of that aforementioned blackness. I shudder. What could it be? A horrific bird? An old, broken old kite? A wind-blown newspaper with a depressing headline? Oh no, I hope it's not a flag. At last I feel it, fluttering against my face, squeaking, buffeting my scalp with fragile, leathery wings. It's a bat. Oh, thank goodness. It's a bat. Can I keep him? asks your son. He followed me home. Somehow, before he even lifts the corner of the box lid so you can peek inside, you know it's a bat. Your son lifts the box lid and two gleaming bat eyes gaze up at you. Why did you assume it was a bat? How could you know? The word sonar reverberates through your mind, but you wisely reject it as a reasonable explanation. That's stupid, you say out loud to yourself, but your son's face registers pain, and you realize that he thinks you've called the bat, and worse, his desire to possess the bat, stupid. But then you realize that you do consider his desire to possess the bat stupid. So you clarify, son, the bat isn't stupid, but it is foolish to think you can own a bat. Do you understand? Your son looks down at the box in his hand, peering inside through the cracked lid. I understand, he says, but you have no idea if he really does. And, knowing him, you never will know if he understands. Why did you even ask him if he understood? You knew what his answer would be, and you knew you'd doubt that answer. Listen, son, you say, the last thing this family needs is more complication. Let's set him free. You and your son go into the backyard. It is dusk. If any time of day is bat time, this is it. Take the lid off now, you say. 
Your son lifts the lid. Nothing flies out. You look down into the box. The box is empty and there is a hole chewed through the bottom. You turn and look back at your house. There's a light on in the kitchen and another in the upstairs bedroom. The house looks as it usually does, but you know that it is not as it usually is. There's a bat in it. You sincerely hope the bat heard you say the bat isn't stupid before it escaped. The man played charades with his wife and another couple. He was trying to get his wife to guess bat, but no matter how much he flapped his arms, soundlessly hissed, and pretended to suck blood from an invisible artery, his wife either could not or would not guess bat. In fact, after guessing a dozen different species of bird, she had lapsed into sullen silence, waiting for the timer to run out and the failure to be complete. She wanted her husband to fail, and she wanted it to be his fault. That's what he thought, anyway. His only hope now was that the other couple, after the timer went off, with nothing to gain or lose from the admission, would acknowledge that they had known it was a bat. Yes, they'd known the whole time. How had his wife not gotten it? Because they definitely would have gotten it, both of them. The timer ticked while the man flapped some more and tried to retract his upper lip enough to bear his quote-unquote fangs. And then there was a crash from above. Glass rained down from the ceiling onto the coffee table, injuring no one. Everyone screamed, especially the men, and they all looked up. A bat, gripping a ball-peen hammer in its toes, flew down through the shattered skylight and into the room. The man, who had stopped flapping, looked at his wife and pointed at the bat. He pointed emphatically. The timer ticked. The man's wife's eyes widened, her face ablaze with comprehension. Hammer, she shouted, and the timer dinged. We can't spend the rest of our lives here. We should go now. Not even the current inhabitants spend all of their time here, so no reasonable person would expect us to. We're humans, did I mention that? We got what we came for. So, yes, I'm ready if you are. Let's go. We turn and head back in the direction from which we came. We leave. We depart from... The Battery. We climb the steps in the drafty, creaky old house. The house is also abandoned. There's a coat of dust on the banister. The steps lead up and up, to the second floor and beyond, to the third floor and beyond. The stairs become more narrow the higher they climb. At last, with the walls pressing in close on both sides of us, we come to a foreboding door, and through the door we sense them. We sense them, and we sense them sensing us, hanging upside down from the bare rafters, just sensing away. They're in there. We open the door and step into the dark, cluttered attic. We have entered the battery. A man, in a moment of childish terror, strikes a bat in mid-flight with a tennis racket and is immediately stricken with remorse. He scoops the crumpled form of the bat into a bucket and takes it into his garage. It stirs weakly and the man realizes the bat is alive. Over the next few weeks, the man nurses the bat back to health, refusing to name it for fear that he will jinx the bat's recovery process. One day, the man comes into the garage to find the bat fluttering about, knocking against the walls and ceiling. The man realizes the time has come to allow the bat to return to the outside world. He presses the button on the wall and the garage door rises, slowly revealing the blue evening outside. The bat flies out through the open garage door and disappears. 
At last, the man feels comfortable choosing a name for the bat, which he will apply to the bat in his memories of the time he and the bat spent together. I'll call him Vagabond, says the man, and the bat flies all the way back from wherever it had gotten to, hovers in front of the man's face, and it uses one of its wings, which is still sore from the tennis racket, to slap the man right across the face, because that's how much it hates the name Vagabond. Two bats hung from a tree branch in a public park in broad daylight, 40 feet above the ground. A sharp-eyed child spotted them and pointed, shouting, Look, look, look at those strange things up there. Other children gathered around the first child, craning their necks, trying to see what he was pointing at. The two bats were wide awake, but they did not explain what they were to the children. They kept their wings wrapped tightly around their bodies, and they let the children wonder and speculate. They even let one large, loud-mouthed child boldly declare them to be both dead and boring. The bats could have frightened those children, could have inspired them, could have filled them with awe, could have absolutely blown their fragile minds. But they didn't. The children eventually wandered away. Night fell and the bats unfolded their wings and stretched. But one child had stayed, hidden among the playground equipment. And while his parents frantically searched the neighborhood for him and called the police and asked their friends to pray for the safe return of their child, that child watched as two bats flew around the deserted park and ate hundreds of insects apiece, gorging themselves on tiny lives. One night there will come a group of bats, six of them all together, and these bats will tap at your window with their fangs, bared for functionality, not for menace. You will wake from a dull dreamlessness and open your bedroom window, and in will fly the bat group, circling your room, steering well clear of your ceiling fan, even though it will not be turned on. And then you will remember that you had promised them that you would make little capes for all of them, glittery maroon capes for them to wear as they go about their business. But you totally spaced it off, and now the bats are here on the appointed date and time, and you have nothing to offer them, no capes at all. The bats will continue to circle your room, and the atmosphere will become uncomfortable. The more they stick around, the guiltier you will feel. And then you will realize something. They will not leave until they have their capes, so you had better get started. You will rise from your bed and, with the bats following and observing, you will retrieve the glittery maroon fabric from the closet underneath the basement stairs, and then you will sit down at your sewing machine and go to work. Depending on how picky the bats are about how well the capes fit, you may have to call in sick to work in the morning. But one thing you will never wonder is why these bats want these capes so badly. To you, at that point in your life, the answer will be obvious, even though it may not now be so. Bats are not blind, none of them are. So why could there not be a seeing-eye bat for a blind person held on a light, stylish cord and flying helpfully ahead, leading the blind person around obstacles and hissing merrily at passers-by? And then, in total darkness, when even a seeing-eye dog would be useless, the seeing-eye bat could use its sonar to lead the blind person onward in perfect safety, into the craggy depths of the cave, like if the blind person wanted to visit the place where the seeing-eye bat was born, for example, or wherever. But if it turns out that bats don't find this kind of work fulfilling, then I oppose the whole idea. It's time for us to go. We've been in this attic a while and it's been interesting, but there's really only so much to do. Besides, what if someone saw us going into this house? They may have called the cops. We should get moving, just in case. Say goodbye if you want. Some of us say goodbye and some of us don't. But in the end, we all leave the battery. We approached the ancient castle on a narrow, forgotten road, winding among the rocks and blighted trees. The crumbling towers loom over us in the overcast sky, and their windows are very thin. 
We cross the drawbridge and it creaks under our feet as the stagnant moat water down below just sits there, stinking away. The castle's massive front door is ajar and we step into a vast, dark hall wherein our nervous throat-clearing noises echo back to us. Above us, way up in the lofty ceiling of the hall, we sense them hanging there. Tiny hearts awaiting night, expressive faces slack in their slumber. We have entered the Battery. The sailors lashed the bat to the mast for his own good, for only he could hear the ultrasonic song of the sirens. Only he was in danger of succumbing to their seductive harmonies, which they were singing at a frequency of roughly 60 kilohertz, well beyond the upper limit of human hearing. The sea was calm, but the sailors gathered around the bat and watched him writhe against his bonds, flexing his wings against the tight cords and hissing in rage and desperation. We should let him go, said someone. I can't bear to see him like this. No, shouted another. He'll fly to his doom, out over the waves and gone forever, pulled down into the depths where no bat should ever go. Look, shouted another. He's getting even more upset. Everyone looked, and yes, the bat was visibly the most upset they'd ever seen him, and they'd seen him pretty upset before, like when one of the sailors had tried to outfit him with little goggles, and another time when he bonked his head on a cannon. He's mad because we don't trust his self-control, shouted another sailor. He's mad because we doubt his will. And with that, the sailor lunged forward and sliced through the bat's bonds with his cutlass. Everyone groaned as the bat immediately took wing over the side of the ship and out single-mindedly across the watery waves. Great, said one sailor to the sailor who had freed the bat. I so want to keelhaul you right now. I'm not even joking. Dr. Morrowell seeks to learn of the government of bats. How do they make decisions as a group is a question for which he is interested in finding an answer. He dresses all in black and goes down into a cave. He bolts a bar to the ceiling of the cave and then hangs from the bar by his legs among the bats, observing them as he lives among them. This lasts for maybe a couple of minutes before he passes out and falls straight down to the floor of the cave. He's very fortunate not to break his neck. When he awakens, Dr. Morrowell finds himself drifting down a subterranean river in complete darkness on a raft made of solidified guano. Feeling around with his clumsy hands, he finds a sandwich next to him on the raft. It's made out of two pieces of whole grain bread, with a paralyzed but still alive mole between them. It's not a good sandwich for a man like Dr. Morrowell, but the bats clearly meant well. Dr. Morrowell throws the mole in the water to put it out of its misery and eats the bread. But why is he crying? It's because he does not know how the bats decided what to do with him after he fell. Did they vote on a course of action? Did an elected leader step forward to make a decision? Or did a leader who inherited the authority over the bats by virtue of his royal lineage choose this fate for Dr. Morrowell? Riding blindly on his guano raft, carried by the dark current, Dr. Morrowell doubts he will ever know the answers to these questions. It's a bitter pill to swallow, and not just because that whole grain bread was so dry. Unbeknownst to Dr. Morrowell, three members of the bat oligarchy fly along just above and behind him, making sure he stays safe until he reaches the destination. They are, however, embarrassed about the poorly received sandwich. That was an error. When you brush a bat, make sure you use a brush of the correct size and do not brush too hard or too many times. Three light brushes is often plenty to make the bat's coat look as good as the bat wants it to look. It may not look as good as you want it to look after three brushes, but why are you really brushing this bat? If you're doing it to get the bat's coat up to your standards, then just set that brush right down and get out. The bat will wait patiently by the brush until a bat brusher motivated less by selfish concerns happens upon it. 
unless, of course, your selfish brushing methods have caused the bat to turn its back on being brushed for life. If you wanted to brush a bat how you wanted to brush a bat, you should have purchased a lifelike replica bat or an anonymous taxidermied bat. I almost bought a taxidermied bat at an antique mall in Cincinnati one time, but it was too expensive. It was small, it was under glass, mounted with wings spread and teeth bare, just how it should be. I decided against it, maybe because I'd recently heard a sermon about stewardship. Then we went outside and saw that my car had a flat tire. I should have purchased that taxidermied bat. I should have bought it. And then one night, leagues from where they'd last seen him, the bat returned to the ship, carrying tokens of the siren's respect and admiration in a pouch around his neck. The sailors were stunned, incredulous. They didn't kill you? asked one. They didn't drag you down into the depths of the sea? Obviously not, said another, going through the bat's pouch. Look what they gave him. Locks of shimmering hair intertwined with fragrant violet seaweed, the likes of which we've never seen. A silver crab leg, a tiny piccolo made of coral, a suction cup from an infant sea monster's tentacle. Why didn't he kill them, cried one of the sailors. Why do you care, asked another. We couldn't hear their singing at that frequency anyway. Yes, said another sailor, but what about the continued danger to his fellow bats who can also hear sounds at that frequency, but who lack whatever qualities he possesses that charmed the usually murderous sirens? All the sailors looked up to where the bat hung suspended upside down in the rigging. He was fast asleep, snoring cartoonishly. And then they remembered. He was the only seagoing bat in the world. I don't know about you, but I think we should leave now. Don't get me wrong, castles are fun. They're fascinating. Did you know that they're historical? We don't really need to see all of it. Like the throne room, who cares? The torture chamber, who cares? Wave to the bats. They're not going to wave back, but it's a symbolic gesture, so just do it. That's a nice wave you've got there. Go ahead and keep waving as we leave the battery. We follow the train tracks as they wind their way through forests and fallow fields. Some of us walk on the rails like graceless gymnasts on balancing beams. The sky is as gray as a tooth filling. Winter is nigh. In fact, it's so nigh that it's actually here, or will be soon when it gets nigher. We come to a bridge, then, the train tracks running across it to the other side of a ravine. But we do not cross the bridge. We veer down the slope, under the bridge, in the shadow of the bridge. And over our heads, clinging to the iron girders, they are there. Not thousands, not hundreds, maybe only a few dozen. But they are there, and we have entered the battery. The bat with one wing crawls along the forest floor, a glaze of wet snow coating all and everything, including the eastern side of all the tree trunks. And more snow falls on top of the already fallen snow, and accumulation does thereby occur. The one-winged bat has a glaze of wet snow on her body as well, on her head, on her one wing. On the bat's left side, the one without the wing, she still has her skinny arm and hand, but, as I said, no wing. Her right side is the one with the wing, and an above-average wing at that. But for all of its above-average qualities, the bat's one wing does not enable her to fly, and it is an actual hindrance to crawling, especially in accumulating snow. The one-winged bat, Every movement laborious in her weakened state leaves a strange trail through those woods in that snow, and she has no destination in mind. She is weak, thirsty, hungry, dazed, and abandoned. She collapses, and, in a state not dissimilar to death, she has three visions. 
In the first vision, a kettle of water boils over a fire and two men in parkas sit nearby on the two halves of a split cinder block. Snow falls thickly. Many flakes meet their instantaneous ends in the kettle. Beside the men, frozen in a misshapen block of ice, is a bat. One of the men rises from his half of the broken cinder block and, with big old tongs, lifts the block of ice with the bat inside of it and lowers it into the boiling water. Then he tosses the tongs into the snow where they hiss prissily as he returns to his seat. The men wait. The kettle begins to gurgle and steam and foam and froth. The men stand, their faces in the firelight visible only from nose to forehead. The fire begins to billow black smoke up around the kettle, hiding it from view. Then the smoke subsides and the water in the kettle is still. The men approach the kettle, which is empty save for the water. One man removes his glove and touches the water with his forefinger. It is bitterly cold. Both men look up and see nothing but heavy flakes falling toward them out of blackness. Their eyelashes snag the snowflakes, and there the flakes melt not. In the second vision, a low stone wall splits a vast field of white in twain. A perfect drift of snow has formed against the wall's eastern side. A bright winter sun shines down sans warmth upon the snow, and the glare has the potential to blind, especially those who are easily blinded. A lone mosquito flies merrily along. This mosquito is perhaps a superb hero to his kind. A mosquito who does not die instantly in the cold. A mosquito who spends winter as a solitary wanderer, seeing things no other mosquito has ever seen. As the mosquito passes over the wall, a portion of the drift shifts, then rises up into the air and engulfs the mosquito, and the mosquito is gone. The white shape then continues up into the agonizingly blue sky, its dimensions impossible to estimate, but it is large, and it is white, and it is almost certainly a bat. The sky is too bright, look away, eyes closed, spots of undulating color, another glance, no, far too bright. But where will the huge white bat, if that indeed be what it was, find more to eat? Surely there are few mosquitoes like the one it just ate, very few, if any. Unless, perhaps, that unique mosquito possesses qualities that, when consumed, can sustain the huge white bat for weeks or months or years or a lifetime. An insectoid fountain of youth, winged and winterproof, but now eaten. Its rejuvenative properties, perhaps already at work within the huge white bat's bones and blood and very spirit. In the third vision, the bat with one wing lies cold and alone and dying in a snowy woods with her eyes closed, awaiting oblivion. A jangling sound causes her to open her eyes. There, a short distance away, she sees a sleigh that appears to have been entirely carved from one piece of dense black wood. Eight fruit bats are harnessed to the sleigh, standing now in the snow with their chests heaving, eyes downcast, waiting. A man looms over the one-winged bat, at least eight feet tall. He wears a blood-red robe that stops just short of his pale, bare feet. Only the middle toe on his left foot has a toenail. The hood of his robe is pulled up around his gaunt face, and a white beard hangs down almost to his waist. On top of his head is a circlet of rare forest plants of winter, plucked from regions of ever-present ice, woven and ornamented with deep red berries dripping sour juice. And his eyes are like unmined coal buried in the depths of the earth, never to be burned, never to be gathered, never even to be found. You are not a partial bat, he croaks, his voice like the groaning of a glacier. You are a whole bat with one wing. A second wing will make you no more whole. But, nevertheless awake, a second wing approaches. 
The bat with one wing awakens to find that her hunger and thirst and exhaustion and pain remain, but not her isolation. For all around her in the snow, bats with two heads are landing with whooshes and soft thuds and rustling wings. These new bats, she notices, in addition to their two heads, also have four legs and strangely broad bodies. No. As her wits return, she realizes that these are not mutant bats. These are pairs of bats, each with one wing, one with a left wing, one with a right wing, clinging together with their non-winged arms, flapping in unison in order to fly. And she looks up and she sees one of these matched pairs circling down toward her amidst the falling snow. And beneath this pair, firmly held in their four feet, is a bat with no wing at all on its left side and one perfect wing on its right. Everybody up. Everybody. That means all of you. I don't want to go either, but I promised them we'd be home for Christmas dinner as long as Christmas dinner was guaranteed to be good. And they did guarantee that it would be good, so we need to at least go see if it's actually good. And then I think we're doing a gift exchange. But before we let our focus shift to Christmas dinner and the ensuing gift exchange, let's maintain our focus on what we've experienced here as we march out from under the bridge and up the ravine to the railroad tracks and behind us leave the battery. We go down to the cellar to fetch some canned goods, some of which are so good they should be called canned very goods, or in some cases even canned grates. But some of them, like the green beans, aren't that much better than those you'd buy at the store. Those we should call canned pretty goods. The wooden steps creak beneath our feet. The bare light bulb hanging from the ceiling in the middle of the room is too weak to penetrate the dark corners of the cellar. And it is in those corners that we sense their presence, hanging there and resenting ours, but not so much as to knock over the canned goods, canned very goods, and canned grates, thank goodness. If they wanted to knock over some canned pretty goods, cleaning up the broken glass would be a pain, but no one would shed any tears. We have entered the battery. A new high school needed a mascot. It came down to a choice between the charioteers and the bats. It was up to members of the school board to decide, so they took a vote. Everyone was in suspense while the votes were counted. There were two votes for the charioteers. There were well over 500 votes for the bats. There were only five people on the school board. What had happened? Bats had rigged the vote. The board elected to re-vote in a setting less vulnerable to tampering from bats. They locked themselves in a bomb shelter and voted again. This time the charioteers only lost 89 to 2. They had managed to eliminate most of the bats from the voting process, but the most clever ones were still tampering somehow. Hold on, said a board member. Two isn't enough votes to win, even if only five votes were counted. So the new high school became the home of the bats, but they were bad at sports and someone changed the T in bats to a D on all of their signs, so they read, Home of the Bads. And no matter how many times they changed them back to T's, the next morning they would all be D's again, and no one ever figured out who was doing it. But all I know is that it would have had to have been a coordinated effort between many small people or animals with the power of flight, natural camouflage, and a propensity for nighttime operations. The old bat was at the end of the line. He was dying and everyone knew it. They gathered around him to ease his pain with peaceable facial expressions and good-natured eyebrow raising, which the old bat took in stride or seemed to. Let's say what we'll remember about him, said one of them. I'll go first. 
I will always remember him as young and strong. Another said, I'll remember him as experienced and wise. A third said, I'll remember him as an adorable baby. A fourth said, I'll remember him as an awkward adolescent, and I did not know bats could get acne. A fifth said, I'll remember him as a regal purple color, which he is not, but memory is strange and slippery. A sixth said, I'll remember him as the impetus, in death, for each of us to speak out loud for the first time ever. The others nodded in agreement, for indeed, none of them had ever spoken aloud before now. The old bat, on the other hand, had, but none of them would ever know that. A woman thought, if these trained bats can fly in perfect synchronization, why shouldn't I be able to start my own small business? This was, of course, a logical fallacy, but nonetheless, she was inspired. What she didn't know was that the bats were not flying in perfect synchronization on purpose, although they probably could have. Also, they weren't trained bats at all. What she had witnessed was either pure coincidence, or else the bats were being unknowingly guided by forces beyond their understanding. But the woman started her own small business, and it was successful, and she always gave credit to the bats whenever anyone asked her how she found the confidence to chase her dream, which only happened three times. The bats, on the other hand, never flew in perfect synchronization with any other bats ever again, nor did they start any small businesses, but they lived fulfilling lives full of oblivious unemployment and out-of-sync flying, which I think we should all agree to agree is the best kind. A bat can and will predict an otherwise unexpected eclipse, but you must not be expecting the eclipse or the prediction will never come, no matter how much you beg or pretend to not be expecting the eclipse. Interpreting the bat's eclipse prediction as such, however, can be a troubling experience. You may be exposed to many disturbing half-truths, and I'm sorry to say that the true halves of the half-truths are the disturbing parts. You may also have to endure sustained physical exertion at a level beyond your typical exercise routine, as bats delight in testing the limits of a curious man or woman's interest in their predictions. And the bats are sometimes wrong, perhaps willfully, no one knows. And keep in mind that scientists also know when eclipses are going to happen, and that that information is readily available on the internet at any hour of the day or of the night. If you're going to the bats for their unexpected eclipse predictions because you think it sounds like a practical proposition, then I guess you deserve what you get. A bat broke free of Earth's atmosphere on one occasion that we know of, according to legend. It flew through space and, as far as we know, continues to do so to this day. Why shouldn't it? This bat, wheeling through the cosmos, escorted by comets, illuminated by suns in the dozens of dozens, billions of dozens, many of them bigger than our own sun, and another sun of equal size combined, this bat has, to the best of our knowledge, flown out of our solar system, commonly known as the Milky Way. This bat has flat past wonders at which mankind has been heretofore unable to wonder. This bat may know of life beyond our familiar stars. This bat may know of a bat planet, for all we know, where only bats live. Or this bat may know of a space bat the size of a planet, gargantuan hisses swallowed up by the vast soundlessness in which it flaps. Or the bat from Earth, flying through space, as the legend tells us, may have found nothing worth noting. And even if that bat has found nothing worth noting, we know that there is something in outer space worth noting. That bat. We pick a jar. Well, a can. They're not called jarred goods, after all, even though they are in glass jars, aren't they? Let's not get into this. The bats want their cellar back. They're tired of huddling in the dark corners while we peruse the dusty shelves for the perfect can of peaches. Canned perfects, that's enough. Can in hand, 
We mount the steps back up to the kitchen. We turn off the light. And behind us, below us, we hear a relieved fluttering in the blackness as we leave the battery. We take a guided tour through a vacant warehouse. There are some of the windows, says the tour guide. Broken, sadly, but they needn't stay broken. Many people are unaware that when this warehouse was first built, every single window was intact. We all look at each other, and we make that eyebrows arched, not angry, frown face that means, huh. In fact, says the tour guide, much of this glass we're walking on now was a part of those windows back when they were new and whole and unbroken. We all look down at the glass fragments crunching under the sandals we're wearing because we thought this was going to be a different kind of tour. Just then, to our surprise and delight, we hear a distinctive flapping sound way up over our heads in the darkness just beneath the warehouse roof. With neither intention nor expectation, nevertheless, we have entered the battery. When I was a senior in high school, I took a creative writing class. One day, just as a fun, silly assignment, Mr. Iden told us to come back the next day with a few hink pinks to share with the class. A hink pink is a kind of riddle where the answer is always two words that rhyme. I'll give you a simple example. What do you call the area in which people are encouraged to vocalize their pain? Groan zone. I'll give you another one. What do you call breakfast food befitting a supreme ruler? Imperial cereal. This is a game my friends and I still play to this day, sometimes while hiking. So we all came to class the next day with our hink pinks. I don't remember any of mine or Matt's or JJ's, but I do remember one of Tyler Campbell's hink pinks. What, he asked, do you call a bat that's fat? We all looked at him in disbelief. Someone hazarded a guess. Bat, bat? No, said Tyler. He sounded a little insulted. You can't just put the words in the clue but in a different order, I said. I didn't, said Tyler. It has to be fat bat, said Matt. It's not fat bat, said Tyler, raising his voice. He was frustrated with all of us. We were being dense. Fine, said Mr. Iden. What's the answer? In that moment, perhaps a glimmer of doubt appeared in Tyler's eyes. But maybe my brain has added that glimmer of doubt in retrospect. I don't know. What I do know is that Tyler then gave us the answer to his hink pink. What do you call a bat that's fat? Fatty batty. There is a bat who remembers you. It saw you, perhaps last night, perhaps years ago, but you made an impression, and if I were you, I would find that comforting. If I were you, the knowledge that somewhere out there is a bat who remembers me would put a spring in my step. Granted, the bat may not remember you for positive reasons. It's certainly the case that people and events are often memorable for their awfulness. But I hope, both for your sake and the bat's sake, that the bat remembers you for a nice reason. Maybe you were the most beautiful human the bat had ever seen. Although, if a bat thought you were beautiful, then that probably means you looked the most like a bat of any human that bat had ever seen. I love bats, but that wouldn't be much of a compliment. When bats look like bats, it's lovely. When humans look like bats, it makes you a little ill. And in the spirit of fairness, I should point out that there's a millipede that remembers your birthday. But, if I may editorialize for a moment, who cares? A man locked in a high tower. He presses his face to the bars, feels the night air on his chin, forehead, and many other regions of his face. He is very hungry, but not starving, for every night, 
He extends his tongue through the bars and a bat drops tiny morsels of half-cooked rodent meat thereupon. The man doesn't even know if it's the same bat. Thank you, he always croaks to the bat as it flies away to fetch another morsel. Is that bat acting of its own accord? Or is the bat merely an agent of another, a savior biding his time in the vast forest that surrounds the tower until a full-scale rescue can be mounted? The man never asks the bat these questions. He never says anything other than, thank you, to the bat. He believes the bat to be incapable of answering his queries to a satisfying degree. And so the man's life is sustained by a bat with inscrutable motives, appropriate in a way, when you consider the reason this man has been imprisoned in this tower. He sabotaged the Emperor's biannual bat hunt by working in secret for months to build a rapport between the Emperor's hounds and the bats of the realm. When the Emperor discovered the stuffed doll bats covered in authentic bat scent that the hounds had taken to cuddling up to every night as they slept, it didn't take long before the resulting investigation turned up the man responsible. Would the man like to believe the bat knows what he did for it and its compatriots and is thanking him in its own way? Yes, he'd like to believe that. He'd like very much to believe that, but he can't be sure. Still, he sticks his tongue through the bars, the bat deposits a half-cooked morsel of rodent meat on his tongue, and he eats it. He's always liked bats. Always. Fatty Batty was a bat that was fat. Whereas other bats were not fat, Fatty Batty was. Although we know that his fatness preceded all, we do not know if his fatness or his name came first. He was always easy to pick out of a big crowd of bats. All you had to do was look for the fat one. That was Fatty Batty, all right. Doing everything the other bats did in exactly the same way that they did it, except that he was fat the whole time. He flew around, hung upside down, ate bugs, used sonar, fathered baby bats, all while fat. And then he died. Not because he was fat, but because he was old. Because all things die, whether not fat or fat. And the pastor gave a touching eulogy. And at the end he said... What do you call a bat that's fat? And all those assembled responded in unison. Fatty Batty. Sorry about the bats, says the tour guide. We've tried to get them out, but they keep getting back in. The mood turns. Abruptly, it sours. None of us are impressed with what the tour guide just said. Not impressed at all. She obviously doesn't know us very well. And she obviously doesn't know bats very well. You know what? We all just collectively got really sick of this tour. It just got real, real quick. Real quick. It was alright for a while, but now? Now it's not. Now it's time, past time, to leave the battery. We approach the barn, ramshackle and tumble down, incapable in its current state of holding any animal against its will but incapable also, in its current state, of denying the will of any animal which desires to enter, to stay, to make it home. In its prime, this barn housed sheep and horses, horses and donkeys, donkeys and lambs, lambs and horses, horses and sows, sows and uncouth hired hands, and on and on. And through it all, they were there too. Up above the loft, hanging from the beams just under the leaky roof. And now, they are the only ones who remain, the other animals are gone, the loft has collapsed, the roof is a whole new level of leaky, but they remain. One might say they own the barn now, at long last, although they admittedly didn't pay any money for it, or sign any papers, or get a deed or anything. It certainly wasn't willed to them. 
but they're here, and now, so are we. We have entered the battery. A garden, not yet blossomed, not yet bloomed, not yet budded even. Stalks, sticks, twigs, all brown as old dirt, which is also present. But the weather is so fine, the sky is so exceedingly blue. The sun shines down upon the garden with its life giving us to graze. Gentle rains arrive, linger, and depart, bemuddening the old dirt, transforming old dirt to new mud, and yet the garden stays brown. It is, speaking frankly, maddening. This garden, surrounded by a high brick wall, overhung with very bare branches, isn't going anywhere without some bees. But who shall fetch the bees? Who shall coax the bees to our garden? Who shall encourage them to spread a little bit of that busyness our way? A bat, at dusk, flying in the center of a cloud of worker bees, appears over our garden wall. It dives low over our brown and brownish garden, and the cloud of bees disperses among our dormant plant life, disappearing into their work. And the bat, as a little treat to himself for a job well done, eats one bee before flying back over our garden wall and away. Our dusk and garden buzzes the collective buzz of the collective bees buzzing. Will the bat ever deign to return? We certainly hope and pray that such is so. We don't want these bees here forever. Some of us are deathly allergic to them, but none of us are allergic to bats. Quite the opposite, in fact. And soon thereafter, our garden was green, beeless, and bathful. A sleeping man was bitten on the neck by a common vampire bat. With the bat still clinging to his neck, sucking warm blood from his veins, the sleeping man rose to his feet and began to behave strangely. He retrieved his roommate's electric guitar, plugged it in, and played original monster riff after original monster riff. Then, still asleep, with the common vampire bat's tiny fangs still embedded in his neck flesh and the rest of the bat along for the ride, the man drove to a 24-hour grocery store and walked up and down the aisles, selecting items he did not usually buy. The cashier noticed that the man was asleep and that he had a bat hanging from his neck and that a droplet of blood was rolling down his neck toward his shoulder. But the cashier did not wake the man nor attempt to shoo the bat away. For the cashier saw this situation as an opportunity to shortchange a man and then pocket the quantity of change that had been shorted. But when he tried his scam, the man began to groan and pound his fist on top of the cash register until the cashier gave him the proper change. And the man left the grocery store, leaving all of his purchased groceries sitting unbagged at the end of the conveyor belt, but not leaving the common vampire bat, which continued to suckle the blood of his neck. And then the sleeping bloodsucky drove his family-style vehicle to the town car ramp, which was designed to allow brave souls in cars to attempt to ramp a giant pit with a constantly burning tire fire occurring therein. And the man almost made it, but near the end of his trajectory, it became clear that the car was not indeed going to clear the pit, that it was in fact going to crash into the tire fire. So the sleeping man crawled out the window of his car and leapt for safety, and he would not quite have made it if the little common vampire bat sucking his blood hadn't given its wings three sharp flaps. When the man awoke in his bed the next morning, he announced to his dog that he had dreamt of microscopic bats invading his bloodstream. A little boy, for the purpose of this bat-related anecdote, is presenting a report to his class at school. 
He's supposed to be relating ten interesting facts about the animal of his choice, but he cannot bring himself to speak, for he is one of those people who hates public speaking so much that when asked to do it, no matter the level of expectation, they do not do it. The teacher asks him to at least state the name of the animal he researched for the project. Why not start there? But the boy is having none of it. He's petrified. He doesn't know what to say. He doesn't know where to begin. At least, says the teacher, show us your visual aid. This the little boy can do. He reaches into the back pocket of his vaguely atypical jeans and pulls out what appears to be a folded piece of black paper. But as the little boy unfolds his visual aid, it becomes more and more clear that it is not black paper, but is actually a living, breathing bat. The instant the boy has finished unfolding the bat, it begins to fly around the room, overturning desks, dislodging ceiling tiles, setting the globe, spinning far more than is allowed. Bats can overturn desks, says the little boy. Bats can dislodge ceiling tiles. Bats can overspin the globe. Why, he's giving his report. He's listing his ten bat facts. And they're all being proven right in front of the teacher's very eyes. Bats can topple bookshelves. Bats can tear up carpet. The little boy is halfway there. His report is half done. Bats can ruin chalkboards. Bats can shred educational posters. Bats can shatter windows. Bats can fly through shattered windows. And then, the bat gone. The little boy realizes that he is one fact short. Without ten facts, he will fail. In fact, he will be moved from third grade all the way back to kindergarten, which is kindergarten for failures. Bats, he says, floundering. Bats, um, bats steal grade books, rendering this report and all of the reports completely pointless, says the teacher, somehow indicating the absence of the grade book. Hooray, cried the children, all of whom had done terrible jobs on their reports. They all run to the coat room where they find that their jackets have been mercilessly echolocated to the point of flimsiness so extreme they're transparent. I guess I got my 11th bat fact, says the little boy. No one laughs. They're too bummed about their jackets. There's not much to do in a wrecked barn at night, that's true, but it's just kind of a cool place to be. But then... The wind makes an old shutter bang against the wall of the barn, and we run into the night at each of our personal fastest speeds, screaming and pleading for our lives as we abruptly leave the battery. When we started our hike, the day was bright and the sky was free of clouds. But soon after we started our hike, the clouds rolled in and the brightness of the day was dimmed thereby, and the clouds became darker. Then one of us felt a drop of rain, then another of us felt another drop of rain, and then a third one of us felt yet another drop of rain, and so on until each of us had felt a drop of rain, and we all came to the conclusion that it was starting to rain, and that we should find shelter as swiftly as possible, bearing in mind the inherent limitations of our mortal human bodies. We spy an old cabin among the trees, and we hurry inside, finding it dank and musty, but well stocked with firewood, though how long it's been here we cannot say. We start a fire in the fireplace, and as the first flickering flames begin to lick at the logs, a tendril of smoke worms its way up the chimney, and with a powerful whoosh, a flapping black mass comes pouring down out of the chimney and into the room. We have entered the battery. The man was a bat portraitist. 
The one major difficulty in his life was getting bats to pose for their portraits. The only time they would stay motionless long enough for him to paint them was when they were hanging upside down, all folded up in their wings, and those didn't make for very good portraits. He couldn't even see their faces. Anyway, there was no solution to this one fundamental problem, and he never completed a single portrait of a bat, and he was an unequivocal failure. At his funeral, which was lengthy, a lone bat perched upright, face fully exposed at the head of the bat portraitist's closed casket. An amateur artist in attendance noticed the opportunity and executed a detailed drawing of the bat in his sketchbook. But when he was finished and the bat flew away, most people thought the portrait of the bat looked more like a misshapen little man with fake wings he made for himself out of a tarp or tarps. Everyone agreed that the bat portraitist would have done a better job, although none of them would have bet their lives on it since there existed no evidence of his talent. Then they lowered him into his grave. You know what was on his headstone? A horrendous etching of a bat. It looked like a rat with its face washed and two tattered umbrellas stuck to its back, probably held in place by sticky garbage. And so the etching served as a lasting testament to the fact that no one was capable of capturing the likeness of a bat as well as the dead bat portraitist probably would have been able to if the bats had been willing to sit still. The man was a bat photographer. His aim was always to capture the essence of a bat with his camera, or so he said, many times daily, to anyone who would listen, even if their facial expressions clearly indicated that they would rather talk about something else or even nothing at all. But his pictures were often either blurry, too dark, or both. But then it struck him. Perhaps the essence of a bat was a combination of blurriness and darkness. Maybe his conventionally poor photographs were actually flawless representations of the essence of a bat. He decided to believe this. Then he set about increasing his output of dark, blurry photographs of bats, displaying them in galleries and exchanging them for currency, which he called selling to buyers. One evening, as he was photographing a few bats at dusk as they flitted about over a field of ripening wheat, one of the bats swooped down, snatched his camera away from him, and then snapped a picture of him from close range before dropping the camera back into his hands and flying away. Later, when the bat photographer developed the pictures from that evening, he saw that these pictures of bats were neither blurry nor dark somehow. These were clear as day, and the bat's faces were distinct and visible, and on each bat's face was a personal accusation that pierced the bat photographer straight through his soul. Then he saw the picture the bat had taken of him, and his heart sank, for at that moment he realized that the bat had perfectly captured his essence in a picture in a way that he had never truly captured the essence of a bat in a picture. For in this picture of him, taken by the bat, he looked like a befuddled, lazy, defensive old fraud attempting to mask his self-doubt with a veneer of arrogant bluster. The woman was a bat singer. She sang songs for and about bats. It was hard to tell what the bats thought of her songs, but people who didn't like bats didn't like her songs. But she really wanted to know what bats thought of her songs, although she knew it would crush her if she were to find out they didn't like them very much. If she were to find out they hated her songs, she would also be crushed, but the severity of that crushing would be exponentially more severe. But the truth was even worse. None of the bats had ever noticed her songs, and most of them had never noticed her. Some who had noticed her thought she was a fountain, Others thought she was a plant, and others thought she was an acoustic guitar with a large, strange growth on its back. None of them thought she was a human woman playing songs for and about them. 
Well, there was one bat who had noticed the bat singer's songs, but that bat completely misinterpreted the songs as coded directives from a supernatural power, and by following these directives, the bat was driven to madness, which it handled with grace and aplomb. Then, one day, the bat singer found five empty cocoons arranged in a zigzag line on her front porch, which she assumed was an award from the bats for excellence in songwriting, like the bat version of a Grammy. But she was wrong. It was actually a mocking award from the neighborhood rabbits given annually to the person with the worst yard. Bats don't give out awards, sincere, mocking, or otherwise. The bat was an artist among bats, although we have no equivalent of its art among human art forms. The bat's art involved the emission of high-frequency sounds and acrobatic flight maneuvers, but it's not correct to correlate these two elements of its art to singing and dancing, nor were those the only elements of its art, much of which occurred on a level not so much beyond human understanding as outside of it. The artist bat's art also had a practical side, like architecture, in that it made the bat a more formidable eater, although that was not the bat's primary reason for engaging in its art. The artist bat did not live an eccentric lifestyle relative to other bats. The artist bat was not competitive, nor did it strive to set records. The other bats, perhaps, did not appreciate the bat artist while it was among them, but it never sought their appreciation anyway, so why should that fact bother us? Nevertheless, it does bother us, but that's on us, not on the bat artist or its fellow bats. There are some things we will never understand about bats, and we should learn to accept that. You want to know how the bat artist died? It died doing its art, probably too fervently, on a spring night similar to this one, if one disregards this spring night's utter lack of transcendent bat art. Or maybe I'm way off. Maybe there are more bat artists about which we know nothing. Maybe all bats are bat artists. Maybe the only artists are bat artists. We pour our water bottles out on the timid fire in the fireplace and the flames are extinguished and soon the smoke dissipates and the great cloud of bats disappears back up inside of the chimney. We would never want to live in a chimney, but then a great cloud of bats would probably never want to go on a bike ride. Outside the rain continues to fall, but that's alright, we should keep moving anyway. I mean, we all packed our ponchos, which many reviews called the best ponchos for most rain. Although many of these same reviews also called our ponchos the worst ponchos for very specific kinds of rain. Hopefully this rain isn't some of that kind of rain. As we open the door of the cabin, we look back over our shoulder at the fireplace and see no sign of the bats. But we know they're there because of our properly functioning short-term memories. We step back out into the rain and leave the battery. We're very interested in buying this cathedral. It's got some great ornateness. We like how it's pretty much all ornate, actually. That's a strong feature. We'd heard it was very ornate. That's what first interested us. But it's even more ornate than advertised, and for that, we commend it. But can we see the belfry? We'd like to see the belfry now. The realtor leads us to the belfry steps. He tells us that if we just take these steps, they'll take us right to the belfry, if that's where we really want to go, which of course it is. Is the belfry ornate? That's the crucial question to which we must discover the answer before we purchase a cathedral. 
We mount the stairs in a single file line, up and up and up. But when the first of us reaches the top step, his foot triggers a mechanism that converts the belfry stairs into a slide that dumps us screaming down into a dark, subterranean cathedral beneath the cathedral on the surface. This subterranean cathedral is not nearly as ornate, but it has something else in its myriad rooms and halls, something dark, something alive. We have entered the battery. The lifespan of a bat is measured not in years, nor minutes, nor days, nor centuries, nor seconds, nor any other standard increments of time. The lifespan of a bat is measured in wing flaps, in the number of Z's produced during inverted slumber. The lifespan of a bat is measured in the regular pulsation of bat-exclusive emotions within its breast, feeling now one way, feeling now another way. Bats know they will die approximately one day before they die. They are out hunting bugs, they send out a high-frequency sound wave, and what bounces back warns them of the approach of something old and final at which point they change nothing, because what would they change? Do not mourn for the bat that dies. Do not mourn for the bat that the bat that dies leaves behind. Mourn instead for the entire rest of the world, for another bat has navigated its way through the lightless rift that leads beyond our realm and has left us pawing and sniffing at its discarded corporeal form, has left us wondering what we have done to earn a place in this moment to which we feel unequal. Do not eat the bat. It starts with a simple question. Can bats blink? And then, years later, there you are, face to face with yet another bat, looking it right in the eyes, and you're desperately trying not to blink, because you've never seen a bat blink. But you can't be certain that they don't all just blink whenever you blink, so you never see the blinks because your blinks and the bat's blinks are exactly simultaneous. And yes, your own mentor has called your mission a fool's errand. She says that even if you find an answer to your question, what will the world gain? Your eyes are drying out. Your eyelids are twitching. You're sweating you want to blink so badly. Your dry eyes bulge. But this bat isn't going to blink, either until you blink or ever. And either way, you'll again walk away knowing nothing except your own weakness. You blink. The man who considers it an ill omen when two bats peacefully cross paths with each other in plain view of a bishop will find the ill in every good thing, thereby becoming a royal pain. The man who considers it a splendid omen when a bat enters a common house backward will work bats into conversations in ways that would make a decent bat cringe. The man who considers it an ill omen when a bat enters one's house through a dream and then makes a racket trying to get out will pout when disbelieved. The man who considers it an omen of good fortune when a bat brings him a big wad of cash should realize that this isn't an omen of good fortune, this is just good fortune. The man who considers it an ill omen when a bat kills him has an issue similar to the previous man. The man who considers it a favorable omen when a bat kisses his hand should first check his ring finger. That ring is long gone. The man who considers it an ill omen when a bat kisses his lips should not be such a prude. The man who considers it an omen of war when a bat knocks over a suit of armor should first double check to make sure it wasn't a toad who knocked it over. Because if it was a toad, then that's an omen of a dramatic decrease in infant mortality rates and y'all should be celebrating. 
The man who considers it a funny coincidence when a bat has the same cough as him should wipe that smile off his face and see a doctor. The man who considers it an ill omen when a bat with tattered wings alights upon a church spire before noon needs to have an age of enlightenment. A young girl came across a dead bat in the middle of the dirt road down which she walked in sandals, holding a basket in which there were flowers of many sorts, some of which reminded the young girl of live bats in a way that defied explanation. They just did. The bat had been killed by a broken heart, but not its own, of course. The broken heart of another creature had killed the bat. The young girl could tell by the footprints leading up to, around, and away from the body of the bat. This was the young girl's great gift, diagnosing broken hearts through dubious means and blaming them for everything. She, unsqueamish as a veteran maid for a psychotic nobleman, scooped up the body of the bat and placed it among the flowers in her basket. As the young girl continued on her way home, she glanced continually down into her basket to see if life had returned to the bat's body. Why would she expect an impossible thing to happen? Was it her youth, a romantic spirit, a gap in her education? Did she know something we don't, or did she not know something we do? Whatever the case, I shouldn't tell you this, but she saw the dead bat lying there among the flowers. Blink. She saw the dead bat blink. And if that was not an omen of the affirmation of the universe aimed directly at her unbreakable heart, what was it? The subterranean cathedral has many things, chief among them the bats, but it does not appear to have an exit. We have been searching for hours, and the time has come to address the very real possibility that it's possible that we may never find it possible to leave the... Oh, wait. Is this an elevator? It is. We all crowd into the elevator, allowing only the best button pusher among us to choose our destination. The ground floor of the above-ground cathedral. The bats go on about their business or their pleasure, whichever it is, it looks the same. But we... We go up. We leave. The battery. Come one, come all, says the carnival barker, waving to us with his cane. It's a good thing he added that come all, because we always travel as a group, so merely inviting one of us is a good way to ensure that none of us come. We walk over to the carnival barker. Inside this tent, he says, twisting the end of his mustache with his fingertips, twisting it so much that he actually twists it off of his face with a terrible rip, he cries out and flees from his little podium thing, clutching his face, his declaration of what one would find inside this tent forever unfinished. Our only clue is the fact that the outside of the tent is covered in photorealistic paintings of bats. With no one around to take our money... We don't contribute even one dime to the carnival's empty coffers before opening the tent flap and stepping inside. The interior of the huge tent is dark, but filled with nervous flapping activity. We usually identify primarily as a collective, a group, we being our preferred personal pronoun, but in this case I'd like to point out that it was me who whispered, low and reverent, We have entered the battery. A bat inadvertently found a hole in the deepest, darkest depths of darkness in his cave that, when he flew through it, 
transported him back in time to an era in which bats were known as the most professional of all animals, and it learned many valuable lessons from its ancient ancestors, techniques and attitudes and stratagems of batness, of which it had only been subconsciously aware, perhaps, but which it had never engaged with on a direct and personal level. Unfortunately, it couldn't find its way back to the present day, so it just stayed in the past, which it grew to tolerate once it picked up the subtleties of old-timey wit. But the one thing it never got used to was how, instead of old wives' tales, everyone just called them wives' tales, even though the wives who shared the tales were often old. The best thing about being in the past, though, other than the professionalism stuff, was the fact that there were no spelunkers and no mosquito foggers. In the end, the bat probably would have given the past that became his home a 6.5 out of 10. A young girl wants to grow up to be a mad scientist so she can make a monkey-bat hybrid, but she doesn't tell her parents about her dream because she's pretty sure they don't want there to be monkey-bat hybrids in the world because they're afraid of new things and afraid of things they don't understand. And the young girl is certain her parents will never understand the complexities of her monkey-bat hybrids. She definitely wants her hybrids to be more bat than monkey, though. She basically wants to end up with a bat that knows sign language. Later in life, she thinks, wait, has anyone ever just tried to teach a bat sign language? She checks out a lab bat from the bat lab and takes it to her home laboratory, where she already has quite a few monkeys on hand, although they're mostly just hanging around and smoking cigars and rocking too fast in their child-sized rocking chairs. The young girl, not quite so young anymore, spends weeks trying to teach the bat sign language, often shouting for the monkeys to pipe down so the bat can concentrate. In the end, the bat learns no sign language. Not only that, but the girl doesn't even make any monkey-bat hybrids. All she makes is a grindcore power metal hybrid band with six of her friends, and that's pretty much it for her successful hybrids in her life depending on your definition of successful, because the band only ever goes on two short tours and sells maybe a total of 400 records. And I don't know what happens to the monkeys, but the bat, who never learns sign language because he has no interest, does pick up the monkeys' fondness for cigars. Let me tell you about a trio of bats who started out ordinary, but went on to become extraordinary. First of all, they didn't have names, and, to the layman, they looked indistinguishable from each other. Soon, they grew from baby bats into adult bats. They lived in a cave with, like, a million other bats, and they were happy. But then, one day, they all happened to hang upside down from the bottom of the basket of a hot air balloon, and a newspaper photographer got a good picture of them, wherein one of the bats looked like he was smiling and the other two looked irritated. So it kind of looked like one of the bats was telling a joke that he thought was funny, but the other two bats thought was stupid. And it should also be mentioned that a woman fell out of the hot air balloon when it was over 200 feet off the ground, and she landed right on the ground, but survived with only a broken collarbone. And you could see the woman just starting to topple out of the hot air balloon in the same picture as the one bat laughing, two bats not laughing picture. So it was a crazy story all the way around, but with a happy, satisfying ending. A famous perfume company came up with a fragrance called Simply Bat. Its tagline was, Be Nocturnal, but spoken with an accent so exotic it came across as openly disdainful. Simply Bat was selling like extremely hot cakes for a while. The hotter the cakes, the better they sell. But sales took a turn for the worse when someone sprayed some Simply Bat on an actual bat and the bat slipped into a coma. 
The nation held its breath each morning to check the newspaper to see if the bat had died or if it had woken up or if it was still in the coma. For months, the newspaper told the nation that the bat was still in the coma every morning, and the nation exhaled because at least the bat wasn't dead. But then an investigative journalist blew the whole story wide open. No one had ever sprayed a bat with simply bat. The whole thing was a hoax. The nation breathed a giant sigh of relief. But then some numbskull actually did spray a bat with simply bat. And that real bat went straight into a real coma. They had to feed him pureed bugs through an IV. How'd you like to be the nurse in charge of catching a bunch of tiny bugs and pureeing them? Yuck. But many nurses gladly did exactly that. All to keep the comatose bat alive. The biggest problem was the fact that since the first incident had been a hoax, a lot of people thought this real incident was a hoax too, and their lack of belief in the bat caused it to slip deeper and deeper into its coma. So deep, just looking at the bat sort of made you want to slip into a coma. It turns out that no species on earth commits to a coma quite like a bat does. But everything must eventually end, and one day someone thought, hey, let's scrub all the Simply Bat out of the bat's fur. So that's what they did, and the bat woke up and everything went back to normal, which is why everything is still normal to this day. We've had a good time thinking about bats today, but I'd like to take a moment to address a serious issue that we here at Out of All Doors are very concerned about. White Nose Syndrome. White-nose syndrome is a disease caused by an insidious fungus. It kills bats. It's already killed millions. This is a true tragedy, and you can help by donating to research to fight the disease, buying or building bat houses for bats to roost in, and some other stuff too, like educating your children and planting moth-attracting flower gardens. Learn more at batconservation.org. That's where I learned pretty much everything I know about white-nose syndrome. This message is fully endorsed by the saint. This has got to be one of the most bat-filled tents we've ever spent time in. The biggest reason for that is probably that the people who run this carnival filled this tent with bats on purpose. That's really all you need to increase the concentration of bats anywhere. A goal, a plan for achieving that goal, a little effort, someone to do the dirty work, someone to cover up said dirty work, and someone to take the fall if the cover-up doesn't work. In many ways, this carnival tent filled with bats has been an inspiration to us all. One that we won't soon forget, even if government officials strongly imply that we should for our own well-being. Yes, friends, bats aren't everywhere, but they could be. For now, we feel our way along the edge of the tent in the dim light, our vision obscured by the sheer volume of bats until we find the flap through which we enter. We slip back out into the summer night, back onto the carnival grounds with all of its attendant sensory assaults. We leave the battery. We all sit down in the special chairs, clad in our white hospital gowns. The lights blare down on us as the special chairs are reclined, leaving us in supine positions as cold electrodes are attached to our temples and our arms are strapped down. Machinery whirs and clicks, rivers of numbers flow past on computer monitors, syringes enter our arms, a black liquid enters our veins, and the world blurs and twists and collapses around us. We find ourselves deep inside of ourselves, far, far, far down inside of ourselves, a place both foreign and hauntingly familiar, reverberating with the echoes of long-forgotten thoughts from years past. But that isn't all that we find here, deep within ourselves. 
There are living entities, or perfect facsimiles thereof, hanging winged and fanged in the darkest recesses, in the corners of ourselves. Are they surprised to find us, of all people, here within us? We think not, for are they not also us, in a way? Who knows? We have entered the Battery. You have never lived in a universe without bats. A soldier has befriended a bat. The bat has become his confidant. His letters home are sweet-smelling lies, but the words he speaks to the bat reek of the dead. The bat is a sponge for the soldier's grief and horror. The bat soaks it all up and then blasts it out at super-high frequencies in order to locate bugs to eat, never knowing that the soldier is a traitor and a deserter and the letters he's sending home are actually being confiscated from the mailman by the soldier's commanding officer and given to dogs so they can get the soldier's scent from them and then sniff him out so he can be tried for treason and hanged. If the words that the soldier has spoken to the bat are true, can they really also be treasonous? And if so, what will become of the bat in its lack of unwillingness to receive these treasonous words? There is nowhere to tune in at any time in the future to find out the answer to this question. Either I will tell you next, you will find the answer on your own through thought and reflection, or you will never know. Even if all bats become extinct, the universe will never slip beyond their influence. Two bats are not better than one, nor is one better than two, but any is better than none. I have seen a bat swoon from too much moonlight, but not as from heat stroke, but as from love sickness. A totem pole carved with the bat figure in the second from the top position. It seems an error, but no. For the figure in the top position is also a bat. You need to wait until you get all the information before you get outraged. A lesson the internet could stand to learn. Most people don't know what a bat's face looks like, but many pictures are readily available. So what we have here is a failure of initiative and a failure to understand that the faces of bats are actually quite handsome. Many parents ask me to recommend a specific bat to serve as a role model for their children. My answer is invariably the same. That one, I say, and I point to the bat that is always somehow standing nearby, the one with the good markings. All children should strive to have good markings. A bat is not a creature to be trifled with, but to be trifled for? Well then, yes indeed, trifle away. Some bats prefer warmth. Some prefer chilly environments. They're not going to kill each other over it. That would be absurd. For the record, this is not an analogy for religious or political ideologies. It's just a statement of fact. Please don't twist it to suit your peaceful agenda if that's what you were planning on doing. You have never had a truly bat-like thought, nor will you. I probably won't either. When a bat tries to simplify its life, it succeeds 98% of the time. 1% of the time, it accidentally complicates its life. And 1% of the time, it willfully complicates its life in order to simplify the lives of millions of its compatriots. A bat sought fulfillment in the pursuit of feathers for its featherless wings. But there was no fulfillment to be found in feathers, a fact that may seem evident to us, but is in fact precisely as dumb as at least one thing that each of us believes will fulfill us. A statue of a bat, or a bat statue, or a bat you, 
stood in the opulent front hall of the manor, a reminder to all who entered through the manor's front doors that no matter whose name was on the mailbox at the end of the driveway this week, the bat was still calling the shots. Bats are grotesque, said a man who was accurate. Accurate in his quotation of a man who was inaccurate in his assessment of bats, that is. You have been near bats and not known. You have been oblivious or mistaken them for birds. But the Bible doesn't say that's a sin, so don't worry about it. I just looked up the color of bat blood. It's red. When I was a kid, my favorite exhibit at the Fort Wayne Children's Zoo was in the Australian portion of the park. You'd walk into a long, dark room wherein, all along one side, little Australian bats of some kind flew back and forth in front of a painted outback dusk between two fake caves where they could roost if they wanted. Instead of separating the bats from the visitors with glass, the zoo had opted for very thin wires so you could hear the fluttering of the little bats' little wings. Also, you could press a red button, which would somehow allow you to hear the bats' real-life high-frequency vocalizations in real time. Whenever we went to the zoo with someone who had never been there before, I would make them close their eyes before we went into the exhibit, so they could then open their eyes and be immersed in the scene, so it could feel real just for a second or two. If you squinted your eyes, you could almost believe the wires weren't there, as if there were nothing between you and the bats. What if bats could burrow like moles? They could dig their own cave systems. They would love that. But maybe they would lose something essentially bat-like in the deal, so it's probably best if everything stays as is. The Marquis advertised a one-man show, but what a delightful surprise when those in attendance discovered that while the show indeed only had one man in it, it also had hundreds of bats, although it wasn't clear if they were supposed to be a part of the show or not. In fact, nothing was clear. The lone survivor of the plane crash was a bat or else the bat was a late arrival to the crash site. Plane experts have all deferred to bat experts on the topic, and the bat experts won't share their opinions on the matter with the public. So everyone remains in the dark. And you know who likes being in the dark. Bats don't need personalities. They have them anyway. What, so we're only allowed to shape our sugar cookies like bats during one month out of the year? Give me a break. A voice is calling us back. Whose voice is that, our own? Sort of sounds like it now that we mention it. The voice echoes through our deep inner selves. The bats flutter away from the sound, retreating deeper into us. So, yeah, I guess this wasn't the absolute deepest part of ourselves after all. Although it may be the deepest we can go, maybe the bats part of ourselves can go deeper than the us part of ourselves. That's some confusing food thought, that is. As the bats go down, we go up, rising rapidly back toward the surface, back to our conscious minds, the reclining chairs and arm restraints and laboratory. We blink our eyes. The world swirls and stutters. A man in a hazmat suit waves his arms over his head and shouts, They saw bats! And as the world finally clicks back into place, we leave the battery. We cross an imaginary threshold, and yet they sense the crossing, and they are all around us. We have entered the battery. 
In order to pass the trial of the three bats, the man had to defeat four bats in single combat. It was called the trial of the three bats, not because of the number of bats one had to defeat in single combat in order to pass it, because then it would have been called the trial of the four bats, but rather it was called the trial of the three bats because it had been invented by three bats and they had named it after themselves in a general sense. The man climbed the mountain, his boots slipping on the slick rocks as rain poured down upon him and lightning struck every tree he looked at as a candidate for shelter, and thunder boomed with a voice as deep as a dead whale's huge sightless eye. The man was armed with only two weapons, a sharp knife and a dull knife. The dull knife was supposed to be a sharp knife too, but the place he ordered the knives from had ripped him off and he hadn't had enough time to return the dull knife before the beginning of his quest to pass the trial of the three bats. His clothes as he climbed the mountain in the storm were of the traditional garb variety, albeit wetter than one traditionally imagines traditional garb to be. His helmet was made from wax-coated cardboard, the one material he thought capable of preventing the bat's sonar from penetrating his skull and liquefying his brain. He had done a lot of research before embarking on his quest to conquer the trial of the three bats. No one could question the sheer volume of his research, but some may be tempted to question the validity of his sources, that's all I'm saying. Upon reaching the summit of the mountain, the man stood in the storm and looked down at the iron trapdoor at his feet. Then, with rain pinging off the metal, the man stooped down, grasped the trapdoor by its handle, and opened it, revealing a ladder leading down into the guts of this, the most menacing mountain of all. So menacing was this mountain, in fact, that some people called it by its official name, Mount Menacing. Most people just called it by its nickname, though, which was Mount Menace, and one local guy just called the mountain Dennis, a reference that shouldn't have been too obscure for most people, but somehow was. As the man climbed down the ladder into the guts of Mount Menacing, the trapdoor slammed shut above him and he was plunged into darkness. He kept climbing down until, after a long time, his feet came to rest on the hard floor of a cavern. Nervous, the man drew his two knives, sharp knife in his left hand, dull knife in his right hand. He heard a fluttering above him. No, behind him. No, both above and behind him. Suddenly, his dull knife was whisked from his right hand. He flailed with the sharp knife in his left hand and succeeded only in stabbing his own right forearm. Crying out, he fainted from the pain. When the man awoke, he had no idea how long he'd been unconscious, and as far as he knew, he still hadn't defeated any of the four bats. He was not making good progress on the trial of the three bats. Hearing the drip, 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 drip of dripping water, the man crawled under the drip and laid down on his back beneath the drip so that it would drip straight into his mouth and eventually slake his thirst by way of the drips. As the drip slowly wet into the back of the man's throat, he realized that he no longer had either of his knives in his possession and that his self-stabbed forearm was throbbing like a son of an unwed gun. The man sighed. He had figured the trial of the three bats would be difficult, but he thought he'd at least defeat two bats in single combat. That was starting to look like he might not even defeat one bat in single combat. He sighed, which caused him to choke on the most recent drip to enter his mouth. He coughed more and more violently, and then he rolled to his left and directly off of a cliff, the very edge of which he had been lying next to without realizing it. He did not survive the fall. But what the man never knew was that he had never even begun the trial of the three bats. 
He had not properly registered for the trial of the three bats, and so the torches that led the way from the base of the ladder to the trial of the three bats arena chamber had never been lit. So yeah, he hadn't even made it to the correct room. Who knows what stole his knives? It could have just been a regular non-trial of the three bats bat, or maybe some bird or a cave spider or something. If the man had registered properly for the trial of the three bats, and the guide torches had been lit, and he had been able to make his way to the trial of the three bats arena chamber, he would have found the following four bats he was to face in single combat awaiting him hanging upside down from glistening anthracite perches. Number one, Virginia. This bat, named Virginia for no reason that any human has ever learned, recently gave birth to a baby bat the size of a house key. Virginia's fighting style is influenced by the words of the minor prophet Amos, spiritually speaking. Her chronic migraines don't hinder her in single combat with humans. Number two is Fern. This bat is a real bruiser, brutish and brutal when a brouhaha is brewing. She packs a punch and that's not all. She also packs a slap. But humans who challenge her to single combat never know in which order she will unpack her punch and her slap, and that uncertainty often drives them to reckless stratagems that ultimately lead to their being punched senseless and slapped silly by none other than Fern. Number three is Janifer. This bat is no stranger to defeating humans who are attempting to pass the trial of the three bats in single combat. She's done it before and she'll do it again. It should be noted that her fangs are crooked. Very crooked. Those hoping that the beating Janifer administers to them will be mitigated by the cleanness of the puncture wounds she leaves in their skin will be sorely disappointed. And number four is Madigan. This bat is a great ant 900 times over. She is also corpulent and depressed. But rouse her ire by challenging her to single combat and you'll get a glimpse of the living terror she was in her slimmer youth. Her weapon of choice is two of your own ribs lashed together in a T-shape with all the ends sharpened to fine points. And so we ask ourselves, is the trial of the three bats really a thing any old joker can try to do, whether for fortune or notoriety or to prove something about him or herself to him or herself or him or herself's own sake? We don't know the answer, and thus we realize that we should have asked someone other than ourselves, since presumably we knew we didn't know the answer to the question before we even asked ourselves the question. But one thing we do know, we don't want to end up like that man did, dead because of an unwillingness to adhere to proper registration protocols. We flip through his journal, the one he left behind in his apartment back home, and within its many pages of inane musings, we discover that he thought it was called the Trial of the Three Bats because it was named in honor of three bats who were unfairly convicted in a court of law of murdering a guard and a paymaster during an armed robbery of a shoe company. Sensing the approach of a new threshold for which we aren't quite ready, we retreat. We leave. The Battery. We are driving across an arid land at night, and we are thirsty. Mile after mile of empty desert rolls darkly past, and there is nowhere to stop except nowhere. Just as we are in the process of signing a contract that will legally resign us to a state of thirstiness for the remainder of our trip, an oasis appears alongside the road ahead of us. The building is two-story house-sized and black, lighted by four spotlights. We pull into its parking lot and exit our vehicle, looking up at the structure in front of us. 
It is shaped like a certain winged mammal, black and elegant. You know the one. And it has a door in its stomach, a door that we approach, a door that we open, a door that we walk through, a door that swings closed behind us as our eyes adjust to the level of light inside the room, which is, guess what? Low. And you know who's waiting for us, even if you don't know their names, even if you don't know if they have names. We have entered the battery. There was this guy who wanted to love bats more than he already did, but he didn't know how to accomplish such a thing. He didn't even know if it was possible, but he wanted to try. Maybe just wanting to love them more than he already did was enough. Maybe that in itself was an indication that there was no defined cap on his love for bats. No. He wanted to do something concrete. So he got a bat tattoo on his chest, right over his heart. It was detailed and expensive. But when he looked at it in the mirror, he could easily imagine someone who didn't love bats as much as he did with the exact same tattoo. So then he went and he got a brand shaped like a bat on his stomach, and it hurt very much. But when it was over, he still wasn't satisfied. In part because the brand didn't look as much like the outline of a bat as he hoped. And also because people were more impressed with the fact that he got a big, painful brand at all than the fact that it was of a bat, especially since they couldn't really tell it was a bat. And also he couldn't wear a shirt because the fabric would stick to the branded flesh, which wasn't doing too well as far as healing and not oozing and such. And although the shirtlessness meant the bat tattoo, which was clearly a bat, was always visible, the brand tended to draw the eye and then, almost immediately after drawing the eye, repel that same eye entirely. So then the guy was like, well, this didn't really work out, but does the fact that I ruined my life in pursuit of a higher level of love for bats mean that I succeeded in loving bats more than I used to? He decided that the answer was yes, but in his heart, he wasn't sure, and he didn't know how to ever find out. He had assumed that upon achieving greater love for bats, he would feel it, that a deep calm would come over him, that he would break through the barrier that he had felt himself pressed against for the last few months, and that he would find himself in a room expansive and warm and welcoming, that he would then be able to stretch out and take a deep breath and admire the full depth and breadth of the extended dimensions of his love for bats. But now it seemed that not only had he not achieved a new level of love for bats, the love that he already had for bats may have been worse than he thought because he had allowed it to lead him and it had led him badly astray. And as the guy looked glumly down at his disaster of a naked torso, he noticed that the bat tattoo was beginning to move. It was peeling itself off of his chest. It was flying up his chimney, carrying a sizable chunk of his heart away with it. And the man felt nothing but the persistent pain of the brand on his stomach. And then he knew that the portion of his heart the bat had taken with it when it left was the portion of his heart that his love for bats could have expanded into if he had made better decisions. But he had not, and now he knew that if he were to break through the barrier, there would not be an expansive warm room on the other side for his love to grow into, but rather a cliff for his love for bats to pour over, tumbling down into darkness until it was gone. Imagine this. A bat doing things you wouldn't expect a bat to do, but not people things. That's too easy. A bat using a crayon to make a sign for a garage sale? Too easy. That's just imagining something a person might do and then substituting a bat for that person. Try harder. Try this. Imagine a bat smoking a cigarette specifically designed for lions. Write a letter to your congressman. 
write it about something other than bats, but casually mention bats in a positive context. See what happens. Little things can make a difference. Maybe you'll wake up a year from now and that congressman will be trying to pass a law that lets bats do whatever they want. Not that I know what that would be. I'm not a bat mind reader. In fact, I don't read any minds. And not because I don't want to. I do want to. I just can't. I'm incapable. Few people are capable. Some say no people can read minds, and they're probably right. Not that I'd stake my life on it, but it seems tough to prove either way. So I guess I will stake my life on it after all. If bats make a child feel uneasy, that child may have one of my least favorite diseases. Take that child to a doctor immediately and tell the doctor I'm worried. Mention me by name, it might help. Has she ever cried over a bat? Either at a tragedy involving a bat or perhaps at the beauty of a bat in action? Has she ever cried because a bat seemed to prefer her over her rival? Has she shed tears upon learning a unique bat fact? Has she cried tears of joy upon learning there's a bat just chilling right around the corner? Is she listening to this right now and crying? Have you ever seen her cry because she watched a cartoon where an anthropomorphic bat couple who everyone thought was solid broke up? Has she cried like a bat? Has she mistaken a bird for a bat and cried when the bird did something stupid because she was disappointed that a bat would do something stupid and then cried with relief when she realized her mistake? Has she cried at the singing voice of a man who dedicated his song to bats? Has she cried because a precocious little girl said, I'm a bat, and seemed to mean it despite its apparent untruth? I hope you gave her a tissue. We step up to the counter. A man stands behind it, ready to receive our orders. We order drinks. The drinks arrive in glasses with ice. We drink them. Our thirsts are slaked. We want to know why the outside of the building is shaped like the outside of a bat, while the inside of the building is not shaped like the inside of a bat. The proprietor tells us that would be impractical. We ask why. He snaps his fingers and a bat with no fur and transparent skin flies out of the kitchen and lands on the counter in front of us. We can clearly see the bat's insides and we instantly understand why a building shaped like that would be a problem for people. All of our questions answered to our satisfaction. One of us says we should hit the road and the others nod their heads in what is either agreement or perhaps a different feeling that they have misrepresented with head nods. We leave the battery. We enter a glowing circle that appears in the air, radiating heat and crackling with energy. Upon passing through it, we travel through time and space across dimensional divides, and we find ourselves in a realm that defies description in all ways except one. There are many, many bats here. We have entered the battery. Bats never walk on stilts, and why should they? Their ability to fly renders stilts obsolete. A bat on stilts wouldn't make you sit up and say, wow. It would make you sit up and say, why? And that's not what bats are going for, ever. You may occasionally hear people say there's more than one way to skin a cat. The one thing you'll never hear people say is there's more than one way to skin a bat. And that's because there isn't more than one way to skin a bat. In fact, there is exactly one way and one way only to skin a bat, and that is with explicit permission from the bat. 
I'm sometimes asked, what's the big deal about bats? It's a question that gives questions a bad name. It makes you question the validity of the very concept of questions. It's a question that causes a trapdoor to spring spontaneously into existence beneath the questioner's feet, falling open and dumping them into a shallow, steaming river. A bat ate a bug full of poison and its stomach became upset, understandably. But it knew a sort of home remedy, a certain kind of moss that grows on a certain kind of stump with roots sunk deep into a certain type of soil. But that moss, stump, and soil happened to be hundreds of miles away and the bat didn't feel well enough to fly that far. So the bat went with the second best remedy, which was a plant that grew locally in plentiful quantities and which, when consumed, made puking pleasurable. There was once a cave without any bats in it. Instead, it had bears, old shopping carts, cave fish, and the occasional no bats please sign bolted to the rock walls. But the bats weren't absent because of the signs. The bats didn't want to be in that cave anyway, and that embarrassed its inhabitants. So they had the signs made and hung them up so it looked like the lack of bats was their decision and not the bats' decision. Were they believed? It's hard to say, there's always some doofus willing to believe something ridiculous. What if you adopted twin bats and raised them like your own children? Not sending them to school and dressing them in human child clothes, but with that amount of love and concern and pride. And then you put them in your will and you died, and the lawyers handling your estate tried to give all your stuff to the bats, but they had zero interest, literally zero interest, and all your stuff just fell into disrepair or got stolen or misplaced, and your impressive lifetime accumulation of wealth was reduced to nothing in a single generation. Would you feel a little foolish from beyond the grave? I once asked my friend to guess what animal I was thinking of. To help him out, I casually hinted at the fact that the animal I was thinking of was a mammal capable of flight, often nocturnal, and capable of hunting winged insects with echolocation. He guessed that the animal I was thinking of was a bat, which was correct, but the way he said it sounded wrong, so I said, no, you're wrong. Incredulous. He asked what other animal had all of the traits I had just described. A bat, I said, and the way I said it sounded so, so correct. It sounded like the most correct guess ever guessed, and so it was, utterly correct, and I won the game. And so you want to have real bats in the haunted house you're making in order to raise funds for a wonderful charity that helps meet the needs of the needy. Everything else will be fake except for the bats. The cobwebs will be fake, the severed limbs will be fake, the witches and whatever they appear to be brewing in their cauldrons will be fake. But the bats will be real bats, and you're very proud of that. You're making that the big headline on your flyer. It reads, Charity Haunted House with Real Bats. But what you apparently don't realize is that those bats are almost certainly going to create dummies of themselves and skip town the first chance they get. So your haunted house is going to have fake bats created by real bats, which is still cooler than fake bats created by humans, but your flyer is going to be a lie, and you may get sued, and that's not going to help meet the needs of the needy, no way. In the 40s, a traveling salesman had been trying to sell vacuum cleaners with little success. Then one day a thought struck him. What if he tried to sell bats instead? So that's what he tried to do. And the very first time he tried to sell the bats, the bats sold him instead, and they used the money as something to drop into a swamp, if you can really call that using it. And what happened to the salesman? 
Well, he spent the rest of his days vacuuming for the housewife who had purchased him from the bats. Sure, every once in a while she'd let him stop vacuuming so she could go listen to a radio program, but as soon as her program was done, she'd have the salesman right back on that vacuum. It was a bad life. Are you going to dress up as a bat for Halloween? Well, I advise you to remember that if you really were a bat, you'd be the biggest bat of all time. No bats are even close to your size and never have been. I'm not trying to rain on your parade, but part of having a good costume is being the right size. And if you're dressed as a bat, well, guess what? You're the wrong size. And there's no way you can get down to the right size by Halloween. My only suggestion is that you change your costume idea to person dressed as a bat of inaccurate proportions. Somehow, by some miracle, we find our way back to the portal. But is this, in fact, the portal by which we entered this dimension? Or will it only lead us farther from our home dimension? So far, in fact, that we may never return to our home dimension. There's no way to know. None of us are interdimensional portal experts, that's for sure. Although it's pretty clear that this is how interdimensional portals actually work. That is, they appear in the air seemingly on their own and cannot be controlled by man-made technology, not even in theory. But another thing that's for sure is that, as much as we love bats, we can't stay here. It's just too much. It's impossible to explain, really, but it's sort of like everything is bats, which makes bats not very special, which is the saddest thing we can think of. So we join hands, close our eyes, and plunge through the portal. We leave the battery. We are very tired and we all want to sleep. We took an informal poll among just us and it was unanimous. We're exhausted. The night is damp and overcast, but no rain falls. A roadside inn appears, an oasis of cheerily lit windows with what we all assume to be a sound roof on top. It only takes a little time and a little money before we have a room on the top floor of the inn with what the innkeeper describes as the biggest bed in the whole inn. We choose to take him at his word, and we clump up the rickety stairs to the top floor. We use the key to open the door to our room, and we all troop inside, removing our boots, shoes, and foot bandages, and making parallel bee lines straight for the bed, which is indeed large. We're just about to throw back the covers and crawl in when we notice something important. The bed is not unoccupied. A row of dark, tiny, slumbering faces, snoring in peace, not wearing tiny nightcaps, but we can easily imagine them. Aren't they supposed to be nocturnal? Nevertheless, we have entered the battery. Bats are not like us. They do not put their pants on one leg at a time. On the rare occasions when they even own pants, they crawl all the way into the pants so that their entire bodies are inside one of the pant legs, leaving the other pant leg completely vacant. A bat flew over a crowd while carrying a sign that read, Here begins the bat parade. So the crowd of people stood around waiting for the bat parade to fly overhead, buzzing with excitement. But as the hours ticked by and no more bats appeared, the buzz of excitement mutated into a murmur of displeasure. But what everyone in the crowd had failed to do was look at the back of the bat sign as it flew away. If any of them had, they would have seen the words, Here ends the Bat Parade, and then they would have thought, Ah, Bat Parade, not Bats Parade. The noun is singular. And then they would have gone home and enjoyed their evening. There's a cult wherein the members worship bats, but what they don't know is that bats aren't deities, nor do they even collectively constitute one deity. 
nor have any bats ever claimed to be deities. The people in this cult just can't get their act together. It's actually pretty sad. You all know that I love bats, but I just want to make sure that none of you assume that I'm associated with the bat-worshipping cult in any way. If you see me out and about and you overhear someone whisper, bat-worshipper, and then snicker as I walk past, please correct that person sternly. Unlike the bat-worshippers, I know that bats aren't infallible. I just happen to find that their few flaws incredibly charming. It is polite, when noticing a bat, to appreciate that bat in your heart. A bat doesn't use a desk, a computer, or a ledger, but it can handle its own business as well or even better than you can, and that includes people with so much business acumen that they've become rich handling nothing but their own business. If handling its own business were any more instinctive for a bat, it would probably be too instinctive, although I'll admit that it's hard for me to articulate or even imagine what the consequences of having the handling of one's own business be too instinctive would be. Sometimes people ask me if the music used for the battery segment was created by a bat. I always get the feeling that they're hoping I'll say, I don't know, followed by a pregnant pause, followed by a friendly, but thanks for asking. There is a woman named Janet who won't, in the presence of bats, admit that she has a name. So bats, if you're listening, now you know the truth. It's Advanced Placement Biology, a high school in the USA, 19th period. This school has very short class periods, and the students are dissecting bats in order to learn a little something about scientific truths, and with a little luck, they'll learn a little something about themselves too, such as whether or not they're capable of grasping scientific truths well enough to pass a multiple choice test on the subject of scientific truths. As the students cut into their bats with taxpayer-funded scalpels, they begin to learn right away, education is transpiring on a modest scale. The class has a little over 20 students. But then something happens that makes the learning grind to a halt. The students start wishing these bats were alive. But it's a little late for that. Far too much learning has already occurred. Some segments of the battery are sobering, like this one, and the one about the Saints' campaign against White Nose Syndrome. Let me tell you about a man who thought there were secret messages meant only for him hidden in the high-frequency echolocation of the calls of bats. He bought some devices to enable him to hear the bats. He bought some devices to record the bats. And he bought a variety of other devices because a device-buying frenzy was upon him. Well, that device-buying frenzy was ultimately his undoing, because one of those devices was a device that was specifically designed to undo its user, and darned if the man who bought it didn't also use it. Anyway, the great potential irony is that if there was a message for the man hidden in the bat's echolocation, it may have been, be selective about which devices you buy. To bats, some bugs are sweet, some bugs are savory, some bugs are salty, some bugs are bland. Some bugs are filling and some bugs are equivalent to a dish that we would consider to be less filling, like a limp salad or a weak soup. To bats, some bugs taste like birthday cake eaten on the one day a year when no one has a birthday. Some bugs taste like glue with spicy red pepper flakes mixed in with it. Some bugs taste like other bugs that you would not expect them to taste like if you base that expectation on their relative lifespans. Lifespan, it turns out, has almost no bearing on how a bug tastes to a bat. To bats, some bugs taste like Mixolord's artificial bug paste, which contains no actual bugs. 
And lastly, to bats, some bugs taste like more, which is a cute way of saying that they taste so good that the bats would like another helping of those same bugs. We stand around, wondering what to do, mouthing solutions at each other that none of us can quite make out, gesturing at the sleeping bats as if to say, they look like the dwarves from Snow White, don't they? Which they do, but still, we were promised that we could sleep in this huge bed, but all these bats are already in it. And it's not their fault, it's the innkeeper's fault. He should have remembered he'd already given the biggest bed in the end to the bats. The only thing to do is to put all of our foot bandages, boots, and shoes back on, go back downstairs, and give that innkeeper a piece of our mind. Probably one of the loud, indignant pieces. Just as we're about to leave the room, an alarm goes off, and the bats sit up, yawn, stretch, blink groggily, throw back the covers, and fly out into the night, through a hole in the window covered by a little curtain that we noticed earlier but didn't comment upon. But even though they're the ones leaving, they can't leave the battery, because they take the battery with them wherever they go. So, indeed, even though we are staying in the room, it is we who leave the battery. We land right on the peak of the slick, snow-covered roof, our however many reindeers stamping their hard, hard hooves on the icy shingles. We all pile out of the sleigh and head for the chimney. It looks pretty narrow. We're going to have to go one after another. If we all try to go down at the same time, we're going to get stuck. That's the one thing we must not do. But, of course, we are absent-minded and we forget that we shouldn't all try to go down the chimney at once. So that's what we try to do, and we get hopelessly stuck. It's really bad. Wedged in a chimney. Again. But we are not alone in that chimney. For just below where we're stuck, there are others, roosting in that sooty darkness, certainly exasperated that we are now collectively blocking their preferred exit. Sorry about this, we say in unison. We have entered... The battery. As the man awoke one morning from uneasy dreams, he found himself transformed in his bed into a gigantic bat. Well, he couldn't go to work as a bat, which was actually a relief, and his family was delighted once they saw him. In fact, there really wasn't a single way in which the man's life and his family's lives weren't improved by his inexplicable overnight transformation into a gigantic bat. It was like Kafka's metamorphosis, except he turned into a bat instead of a bug, and everyone was happy about it instead of everyone being upset about it. And now you get what I was going for. A villainous group of men tried to start a bat-fighting ring. It was like a cock-fighting ring, except for bats. So they put two bats in a ring and placed bets on which one would kill the other one first. But the bats didn't fight. They wouldn't harm each other. The villainous group of men began to argue about whose stupid idea it was to start a bat-fighting ring in the first place. The arguing grew more intense and then turned into an all-out brawl, on which the bats placed bets and Bat 2 won 50 insects off of Bat 1. One day, some bats returned to their cave to discover that a flood had filled it with water, and since none of them could breathe underwater, that was a big problem. Where were they going to find a new cave on such short notice, especially one as good as this one had always been? Then one of them suggested that they hire a young human boy or girl to drink all the water out of the cave. At first, the other bats were stricken dumb by the sheer idiocy of the suggestion, 
But then they realized that the bat who had suggested it was being ironic, which wasn't helpful, but did help to lighten the mood a little. But then, a little girl just happened to walk by, and the bats, perhaps pushing the joke too far, indicated to her that they wanted her to drink all the water out of their cave. But little did they know that she was one of three little girls in the entire history of the world who was actually capable of doing such a thing. And she pulled a straw out of her pocket and set to work, drinking the water in ten-hour shifts with a half-hour break for lunch. Weeks later, she drank the last drop of water from the cave, gave the bats a nod, and went on her way. And those bats always remembered her. And the thing they remembered the most was how she drank a supernatural amount of water out of their cave over the period of several weeks. A bat went to the mall and sat upon Santa's knee, neither smiling nor crying in the inevitable photograph. She, the bat, did not have a written list of gifts that she desired for Christmas. And when Santa, never believing that he'd get a response, asked the bat what she wanted for Christmas, she just looked around and rustled her wings a little. Santa, or rather the man disguised as Santa, didn't really know what to do next. The bat was holding up the line and making neither a verbal nor written request for gifts. This kind of thing was one of the hazards of the job, but the man playing Santa was still irritated. Maybe if he just gently lifted the bat off of his knees and placed her on the ground? But then all the kids would see him do that, and he didn't know how they'd take it. What if they started crying and saying that the real Santa would never use his hands to grasp a bat, remove it from his knee, and place it gently on the floor? The man playing Santa racked his brain for any story he had ever heard wherein Santa interacted with a bat, even in a brief minor way, but he couldn't think of a single one. And then it struck him. That was the problem. Stories of Santa interacting with bats didn't exist. He would be the one setting the precedent, establishing the standard by which all future Santas would be judged when it came to bat handling. And so, boldly, the man playing Santa gave the bat a candy cane, which she dropped, patted her on her head, and said, Ho, 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 be good, Merry Christmas. The bat, seemingly satisfied, flew away. But just as the man playing Santa was feeling pleased with himself, the kids standing in line started crying and saying that the real Santa would never speak to a bat as if it were a human child like they were. Then the man playing Santa, overcome with disgust, tore the fake beard from his face, tore the fake hat from his head, tore the dangly jingle bell earrings from his ears, and tore open a bag of chips, which, unfortunately, he had not yet paid for, and so he was arrested. But the bat got exactly what she wanted for Christmas, unseasonably warm weather. Did you know that Bat is an acceptable nickname for someone named Bartholomew? Like Bat Masterson, the Wild West gunfighter and associate of Wyatt Earp and Teddy Roosevelt. And yet, and yet, many numbskulls choose instead to go by Bart, Barth, Bartho, or Lomu. And that's why I'm starting my voluntarily remove the R from your name of Bart campaign. The goal of the campaign is summed up so perfectly in its name that further explanation could only be redundant. So let's instead take this moment to decry the voluntarily insert an R into the word bat as it pertains to baseball campaign. Can you imagine what would happen if this campaign were to be successful and every time you went to a baseball game, instead of being constantly reminded of the world's most perfect animal, you were instead forced to endure an entire stadium full of people chanting, Swing that Bart! Or, Hey Mr. Ball, meet Dr. Bart! Or, Wood and Aluminum, Bart's, Bart's, Bart's! 
You'd feel disappointed. You'd feel like something was missing, and that something would be the lack of an R in the word Bart. Anyway, if you know someone named Bartholomew, it might be a good idea to call them Bat-all-of-you. How did we get unstuck last time? Oh yes, now we remember. The reindeer gathered around the chimney and spat down upon us until we all became so slick with reindeer saliva that we were able to slide down the chimney and out of the fireplace into the living room. Well, hopefully we won't have to do that again. Many of us are allergic to reindeer saliva, and even those of us who aren't don't much care to be coated in it. And then we feel it, a pressure building beneath us, pushing up against us. The bats are fed up with us and are combining their efforts to drive us back up and out of the chimney. Individually, they are not physically imposing creatures, but now their pooled strength feels immense. How many of them must be down there to exert this kind of upward force on us? Is it working? We can't tell if we become violently unstuck and blast out of the top of the chimney in a fountain of humanity, scattering in all directions and crashing back down onto the roof and, in some cases, crashing two stories down to the snowy yard. A black column of bats pours upward from the chimney and into the night as we leave the battery. We're going down. Our engines are on fire, billowing smoke. We're spiraling toward the ground. Alarms are blaring, the metal shell of our aircraft groaning and creaking from the strain. Some of us are blacking out. Some of us are singing hymns, although it would be nice if we could all sing the same hymn instead of like four different hymns. A mathematician would be able to figure out exactly how soon we're going to hit the ground, but two of our mathematicians are blacked out, and the other one is too busy singing up from the grave he arose in a piercing falsetto to do any math at the moment. Here comes the ground. We hit the ground. We punch through the ground? What's going on? I'll explain at the end, but for now, just know that we see a lot of black shapes flapping past the windows of our cockpit because we have entered the battery. Speaking of crashing, an astronaut crashed on a planet and was captured by hyper-intelligent bats and kept in a cage where he was treated like an inferior species. Then he escaped and saw the ruins of the Statue of Liberty and he realized that he was on Earth in the future and he was like, oh, okay, this is Planet of the Bats. So he went back to the bats and surrendered and while they treated him like a pet for the rest of his life, he had to admit that the bats were doing a much better job with society than humans ever had particularly in regard to society's acceptance of bats, so that was a big step forward. And the Bat Society was only doing slightly worse in the area of providing the man with potential girlfriends, which he was willing to admit was a pretty self-centered complaint, especially considering that the bats themselves all seemed to have very fulfilling romantic relationships. And speaking of crashing and romantic relationships, there was a wedding, and then, following the wedding, a reception. And there were no bats invited, but a few bats showed up anyway. They just casually flapped into the event center where the reception was being held and acted like they belonged, mingling with the other guests, flapping around on the dance floor and clinking glasses with silverware to get the bride and groom to kiss again and again. And no one ever told them to leave. No one ever asked them why they were there, although a few people did ask other people who the bats were and if they were there for the bride or the groom. And later, after the reception was over, and in the years that followed, friends and family of the married couple asked them who the bats were, and the married couple always said they had no idea, that they'd seen the bats and wondered why they were there, but since the bats didn't seem to be doing any harm, they hadn't bothered to have them kicked out. And no one ever did find out the reason that the bats were there, which was that the caterers had included mashed-up bugs in the recipes of all the food at that wedding, even the cake. 
And speaking of crashing and romantic relationships and cake, an aspiring baker made a bat-shaped birthday cake for his wife of six years. And on the cake and frosting, he wrote happy birthday, and he took it home in a state of high excitement, for he knew his wife would love the cake. He had never been more certain of anything in his life. But then the aspiring baker's wife saw the cake, and she looked sad. When the aspiring baker asked her why she looked so sad, his wife said it was because the cake was so close to being an accurate representation of a bat, but it failed because there isn't a species of bat that has the words happy birthday on its chest, so ultimately the cake had to be considered a failure on a strictly scientific level, which she knew was a silly way to evaluate a cake, but she couldn't help herself, it just bothered her. And you know what? She was right. There has never been a real bat with the words happy birthday on its chest, and so the man's special cake could be said to have crashed and burned in a figurative sense. Or in other words, it was not successful. Some people just aren't cut out to be bakers, no matter their aspirations. And speaking of crashing, romantic relationships, cake, and aspirations... There was a man who aspired to be the best professional matchmaker of all time. That was his grand goal. But one night when he was riding a bike and a bat swooped down in front of him, the man, ignorant and foolish, shrieked, veered his bike off of the road, careened out of control, and crashed into two men who were carrying a giant cake on a tray, and all three men were injured. But the bat flew away unharmed and untouched by the man's prejudice, and this is a valuable lesson that sometimes the people we hurt with our prejudices are not bats, but rather ourselves and men on the street who are just going about their business. You're probably wondering if that man went on to achieve his goal of being the best professional matchmaker of all time. Well, I'll tell you his name. His name was Dirk Mazerly. Had you ever heard of him before this story? You hadn't? And are you pretty in the loop in the professional matchmaker community? You are? Well, then there's your answer. And speaking of crashing, romantic relationships, cake, aspirations, and, uh, bicycles, there was a different man who also aspired to be the best professional matchmaker of all time and who was also riding his bike one night when a bat swooped down in front of him. Charmed and intrigued, the man shrieked in delight, swerved abruptly to follow the bat, careened out of control, and crashed into two men who were carrying a giant cake on a tray. But none of the men were injured. The giant cake cushioned their fall, and they all ended up laughing and covered in frosting, rolling around on the sidewalk and having the time of their lives. And the bat flew away without caring that it had brought these moments of pure joy into the world, but responsible all the same, and therefore worthy of all the credit. And this is a valuable lesson that sometimes when you allow yourself to pursue your love of bats with your whole heart, you actually become invulnerable to physical injury. You're probably wondering if that man went on to achieve his goal of being the best professional matchmaker of all time. Well, I'll tell you his name. His name is Chris Mink. Had you ever heard of him before this story? You hadn't? And are you pretty in the loop in the professional matchmaker community? You aren't? Well then, of course you haven't heard of him. Why would you expect to? I told you I'd explain how crashing into the earth actually resulting in us ending up in the battery. Well, the explanation is that we weren't actually crashing into the earth. We were crashing into a life-size replica of Earth made out of wire and paper and filled with bats. So when our crashing plane struck the surface, we just punched right through it. So now we're just continuing on through the dark, hollow center of the replica. Bats flapping out of our way as we zoom by. Maybe using their wings to wave the smoke out of their eyes in irritation after we've passed. And then forgetting we were ever there. And us? Well, eventually we'll punch through the other side of the replica and continue out into the black void of space until we hit another planet. Or maybe we never will. Maybe we'll just keep crashing forever. 
until we've sung every hymn we can think of and we've all blacked out and our plane will hurtle on into the inky void in persistent silence and we will leave the battery. We're trying to get a straight answer, but no one's giving us a straight answer. Sometimes all a person wants is a straight answer, and the one thing they can't get is a straight answer. And that's how all of us are feeling right now. Maybe we just haven't asked the right people. There must be some straight answerers around here somewhere. Excuse us, miss, but what have we entered? Excuse us, sir, but what have we entered? Excuse us, y'all, but what have we entered? Excuse us, child. Excuse us, talking statue. Excuse us, automated information kiosk. But what have we entered? A janitor mops his way over to us. Why don't you guys read that sign, he asks, using a plunger to point at a sign. We sigh collectively. Another person, incapable of or unwilling to, give us a straight answer. We already read the sign. We aren't idiots. We're just trying to get a straight answer. All we want is one person to hear us ask, Excuse us, but what have we entered? And respond by saying, Oh, that's easy, it's right there on the sign. All of us, from you to me to that man to that woman to that talking statue to that janitor, all of us together, we have entered the battery. A golden bat necklace, purest gold, a gold chain with a golden bat-shaped pendant, simply the goldenest. And the eyes of the bat pendant are made from two black jewels, identical in color, but they are not the same kinds of jewels a professional jeweler will tell you. And this necklace and this pendant, if you add their value together, are worth half of the sense that you recognize. Let me explain. If someone offered to trade you this necklace, if you were to offer to surrender your recognition of half of the scents that you currently recognize, that would be a fair trade, and you might just be walking home with a nice golden bat necklace, perhaps recognizing the smell of baking bread, but perhaps not recognizing the smell of pies being baked in ovens directly adjacent to the bread ovens. A bat-shaped bow tie. Where in the two sides of the bow tie are the bat's wings, you can wear this bow tie to any occasion where a bat-shaped bow tie isn't disallowed. Be sure to triple check your invitation to make sure bat-shaped bow ties aren't disallowed. Sometimes, depending on the invitation, text forbidding bat-shaped bow ties is written in invisible ink. Do you know how to get your hands on lemon juice? If you intend to carry the lemon juice to your invitation in your bare cupped palms, be absolutely certain that you don't have any open cuts in your flesh. Your bat-shaped bow tie will grant you several perks, primarily in the realm of keeping your collar cinched closed, and also in the realm of being confident that your bow tie doesn't look like a lesser animal, such as a cricket or a common brown bird. A bat ring, roughly made, ancient in feel and appearance, wrapped around only one finger at a time, as one would most likely expect. Men and women alike see the ring and think, ah, shucks, the person to whom that finger belongs is already spoken for. Insects see the ring and think, something about that ring gives me the heebie-jeebies. 
And if extraterrestrials were to abduct someone wearing the bat ring, they would see it and think even weirder thoughts than usual. Thoughts so weird that if even the most unflappable human representative were to be privy to them, she would not be able to prevent herself from saying, Okay? That bat ring gives your hand an air of mystery. You know the saying, I know it like the back of my hand? Sure, there can be comfort in the familiar, but there can also be tedium. What wouldn't most of us give to glance down at the back of one of our hands and be struck by the oddity of what we see there? The bat ring never changes color according to your mood. Never. Your quote-unquote moods have no effect on the bat ring. Zero. If you want a ring that changes color based on your mood, you don't deserve the bat ring, and I'm not saying a bat will come in the night to remove it from your hand by any means necessary, even if that means taking your whole finger, but I am saying that something will, like if the bat considers the mission beneath him, and he hires a lesser animal, such as a cuttlefish, in which case you'd be perfectly safe unless you sleep with your ring finger dangling in the ocean. Bat jeans. They're made from denim so sturdy, it's been said to be difficult to bust it. Bell-bottoms, jinkos, acid-wash, and mom jeans. Since the beginning of jeans, mankind has been tinkering with jeans and then deriving humor from those jeans in retrospect. Or sometimes not even in retrospect. Sometimes while the jeans are currently stylish. Who among us hasn't said skinny jeans and been summarily rewarded with gales of laughter? But bat jeans are mockery-proof. They're playful, but solemnly so. Fanciful, yet dignified. What makes them bat jeans? They aren't bat-shaped, and they do not have a pattern made of interlocking bats printed on them. I can't really describe their cut, but that has a lot to do with their name, I think. Bats don't wear them, they don't attract bats, and the proceeds for their sales don't go to saving bats, although they should. But trust me, Just try them on and you'll know. It will all make sense. You'll pull a scrap of paper from your pocket and you'll write, Wow, these really are bat jeans on it. And then you'll turn to the person next to you and hiss, Psst, this note is for Gloria. Pass it on. And then as the symphony plays on, the person you handed the note to will turn to the person next to him and repeat your message. And person by person, the note will be passed down the road. Each person's symphony experience interrupted in turn. Until Gloria receives the note, reads it, nods, turns it over, writes a response, and sends it back down the road to you. Each person's symphony experience interrupted again now for a second time. And at last the note will reach the person next to you. And he will lean over and hiss, Psst, this note is for you, from Gloria. And you'll open it, and it will read, Why are you trying on jeans right now? We're at the symphony. And I was going to write about another article of bat clothing, or another wearable bat accessory here, but Andrew's question was about bats, sort of, so I feel obligated to answer it here, while we're in the battery. So, Andrew, you want tips about how to spend more time with octopuses based on my techniques for spending time with bats? Uh, I don't know. Maybe try to lure an octopus with the offer of a free hug? But the trick is, you never specify who the free hug will be from. So the octopus shows up expecting that you'll be the one hugging it, but actually, no. The hug is from a toddler-sized doll named Hank Hug. Here's a quote from Hank Hug's promotional materials. Hank Hug is the doll who doesn't just hug you back. Nine times out of ten, he initiates the hug. Also, I want to be very clear. 
do not get the similarly named Hang Hunk doll by mistake. Hang Hunk will not initiate a hug with an octopus nine times out of ten, nor any times out of ten. And now, having received our straight answer, we've accomplished everything we set out to accomplish. We never said our goals are ambitious. They were only specific. But demanding specificity in the accomplishment of one's goals can be a kind of ambition. But in this case, it wasn't. We got someone to give us a straight answer about something that we already knew because it was obvious. And so now, we can go to bed feeling pleased with ourselves. Go ahead and judge us accordingly. We do not care. Period. Smug, self-satisfied, and sporting grins so insufferable they'd make a crocodile weep sincere tears. We leave the battery. We're locked in a metal box, all of us in there together, crammed shoulder to shoulder, no room to move at all. It's a real mess, a real bad situation for any claustrophobic people in the group, of which there may be a few and maybe more than a few, but everyone's keeping it together, even if just barely. But if any of us tell you we don't want to get out of this metal box, well, if we're in a country where they hang people for lying, then hang that person in accordance with the law of the land. We're not comfortable when somebody smells like sweat, Human, human sweat. Our best guess? Whoever's packed into that corner over there and panting as if dog-like breathing is early spring's hottest trend of all time. And then comes a clanking on the outside of the metal box. A deliberate clanking. This is no accidental clanking. This is no casual clanking. Idle clanking in passing. This is the clanking of a purposeful clanker, and within seconds that purpose becomes clear. The box opens and out we spill, into the dusk, into the world, with all its people, all its places, all its objects, all its creatures. And chief among those creatures are those with fur and wings, eyes and teeth, feet and mystique. We have entered the vast universe outside of our metal box. We have entered the battery. Where do you want me to put this? asks the carrier. Here, says the emperor, and he rises from his throne. The carrier climbs the 105 steps to the throne and sets the pregnant bat down on the seat of the emperor's throne. The seals in the fountain bark their heads off. The walrus in the fountain gently guides a beach ball around the surface of the water with his tusks. The emperor hands the carrier a bucket designed to occupy a carrier's hands when there's nothing of import to carry so the carrier doesn't panic. Then the emperor kneels next to the throne and watches as fifteen bats are born, one after the other. Two of the newborn bats are albinos. The first newborn bat hears voices in its head. The voices of cavemen, words spoken thousands of years before, bestowing the caves henceforward to bats as the cavemen moved their clubs and cots into houses and became housemen, and then just men, dropping their preferred dwelling from their title. The bat doesn't understand the voices, doesn't know that they are voices, hears them only as ah-melodious background music for his instincts. The second newborn bat is the runt. She is microscopic. The emperor watches as the mother bat, with 13 babies still inside of her, appears to lick empty air. But she loves all of her children the same, even if one is so small as to be practically invisible. The third newborn bat is born with a cricket clutch to its chest like a teenage boy saying goodbye to a teddy bear before leaving for college, knowing the teddy bear will not recognize him when he returns at Thanksgiving without acne. The fourth newborn bat is too hungry to think straight. She tries to blackmail the emperor of all people, the one man one should never try to blackmail, the man with an entire division of his army devoted to dealing with blackmailers. 
but he is merciful. He feeds the hungry newborn bat a cockroach that's been soaking in pineapple juice since the emperor got the bat's pregnancy announcement in the mail. The fifth newborn bat looks like a freak, but not in any particular way. It's like this. The emperor looks at it and thinks, oh goodness, two heads. But then he looks closer and thinks, no, only one head. Why did I think two? He shivers like a goose just walked over his grave, which is impossible because he has snipers posted around the perimeter of his grave to shoot all geese who stroll too near. The sixth newborn bat immediately takes flight. What a little prodigy. But it doesn't appear to take any pleasure in the flight. A poignant reminder that knowledge is not wisdom. This baby bat will either learn to enjoy that which it excels at, learn to monetize angst, or challenge itself to achieve things which come less naturally to it, such as appealing to old ladies. The seventh newborn bat wants to be ignored, but the occasion is too important. It gets scared by the barking of the seals. It cowers beneath a fold of the emperor's billowy pants. It tries to blend into the crowd, looking casual, edging toward the basement stairs, and then, when caught, edging toward the out-of-order teleporter. Good luck with life, little bat. It seems like it might be a little rough for you. The eighth newborn bat was born directly onto the emperor's throne and acted like it staged a coup. The ninth newborn bat is shocked to discover that it's a mammal. It thought the inside of the womb was the inside of an egg. It thought some of its siblings were birds and some were reptiles. And it believed itself to be a grotesque hybrid of the two, unfit for compassion. But now it looks up and meets the loving gaze of its mother, the loving gaze of the emperor, the loving gaze of the inaccurate portrayal of the emperor's bloodthirsty father painted on the ceiling. The tenth newborn bat wasn't breathing. The emperor's face crumbled. He picked up the tiny, still bat and put it in a jewel-encrusted cardboard box labeled, didn't quite make it. The emperor had made the box himself with the help of 100 of the world's finest jewelers and two amateur cardboard box makers. The eleventh newborn bat did itself a lot of favors by just being humble, being grateful, and looking a lot like a kitten with wings. The twelfth newborn bat was an out-and-out slob, sloppy and slovenly, unkempt and uncouth. It came into the world a mess, and the world became messier for it. The emperor tried to dab the newborn bat with a paper towel, but the bat tore the paper towel to pieces, scattered the pieces everywhere, and barfed on purpose out of spite. Then it started eyeing the emperor's dessert tray, laden as it was with gooey and crumbly treats, fresh from the subterranean ovens of the emperor's prisoner chef, Sinclair. Servants, said the emperor ruefully, prepare a bath for all of us. The 13th newborn bat was one of the albino bats. It became known as the first bat to ever appear on a postage stamp, which was not true because many other bats had appeared on stamps before it was even born, and also, it never appeared on a stamp. Some people believe that it got its false reputation by pilfering small items from around the palace, pawning them, and saving up its money until it had accumulated enough to send away for a deluxe plan from False Reputations Unlimitable, a company whose reputation was both excellent and dubious. The 14th newborn bat was the other albino bat. Just one day after it was born, it would be kidnapped. Years later, one of the emperor's ash avoiders, whose job it was to never come into contact with ashes of any kind, would find the bat in the city market, held in a cage made of bone and damp velvet. When the bat was restored to its siblings, it taught them vulgarity, and they taught it how to deploy vulgarity with refined style. No one ever found out who had kidnapped it, but I know. It was one of the seals. It wrapped a belt around its own snout to keep from barking during the kidnapping, and it worked. 
The 15th newborn bed has never been seen. Some deny its existence. Some say it appears only in visions and always shrouded in mist. Some say that can't be true because it's allergic to mist. And some say, some say, that the 15th baby bat born on that day took control of the emperor's mind and now rules the empire from behind the throne with the emperor as his plaything, which would go a long way to explaining why the emperor mispronounced the word emperor this year's Your Emperor is Empathetic speech. I even know one person who says the 15th newborn bat was actually the mother bat giving birth to herself again as a baby, and that at the moment of birth she passed her consciousness into the new version of herself in an unsteady first step toward immortality. And two people told me that the 15th newborn bat turned out to be the emperor's ring that he'd lost inside the mother bat the last time he'd helped her deliver her babies, so I don't know what to think. The metal box awaits us. We shower and apply lots of deodorant and brush our teeth. We stretch, getting limber. We change into soft, breathable clothes. Then we climb back into the metal box, arranging ourselves together as best we can in such a tight space, trying our best to keep sharp elbows and knees out of soft stomachs and thighs. Then someone closes us, and only us, inside. And we leave. The battery. We die. We find ourselves on top of and surrounded by puffy clouds. We're wearing white robes, we have two or three halos apiece. The streets are paved with gold and we're strumming tunelessly upon our harps. We are at peace, perfect peace. And somewhere nearby, a chorus of beautiful voices fills the pure air with purer song. Why, could it be? Is this really? It is, it must be. We have entered the Battery. The bat that you saw when you were six, you were standing on a curb and considering a career as a curb maker when the bat flew into your field of vision and you saw it. You clapped your hands as audibly as you could manage and the bat seemed to disappear. Had you clapped it out of existence? No, the bat just flew around the corner of a building. You probably missed it because you probably blinked at the force of your own childish clap. Blinks came so easily when you were young. The bat that you saw when you were six and a half. On its back, it carried a great burden, a stack of uncharacteristically heavy leaves. Where was it taking them? You couldn't imagine. Curious as you were, you couldn't recognize curiosity in others of your own species, much less species other than your own. The bat that you saw when you somehow still hadn't turned seven. The bat saw you first, and you barely caught it out of the corner of your eye as it flew away, trying to avoid your clueless gaze. You knew less than you should have at that age. That bat, though, you would see again under different circumstances, and also you wouldn't know it was the same bat until now. But this time, the first time you saw it, you wondered if the bat was headed wherever it was headed because it knew something that you didn't. Six was a rough age. We all have a lot to learn at six, but man. The bat you saw when you finally had your seventh birthday. You left an invitation to your party in a belfry known to be frequented by some of the area's finest and most influential bats. And then later, outside at the picnic table in your backyard while you were tearing at your hair in rage over your inability to blow out the trick candles on your birthday pie, a bat flew past and you wondered if it had gotten your invitation and decided to make a brief appearance or if it just happened to be flying by. 
If it would have flown by even if you'd never given it an invitation, even if it wasn't your birthday, even if you'd never been born, even if the human race had gone extinct centuries ago for reasons no one would ever determine because all the scientists who would have been interested in determining the reason for the mass extinction would have had to have been descendants of the people who went extinct. And you know no bats would bother to investigate. The bat you saw on the day when your parents discovered that your birth certificate was inaccurate and you were actually still six and would be for another four months. The light spirit with which the bat flapped past you contrasted dramatically with your feeling that you were doomed to be six forever. That when the four months had passed, some new discovery concerning your origin would be made and your seventh birthday would be snatched away from you yet again, continually moved just out of reach destined to be forever closer but never there, a living embodiment of Zeno's dichotomy paradox. Not that you had any idea who Zeno was, what a dichotomy was, or what a paradox was. You were only six, after all. The bat that ignored your petulant insults, knowing, perhaps, that you were only lashing out because you wanted to be seven but were still only six. The bat that flew past when you were about to tell a group of tough seven-year-olds that you were seven too, but upon seeing the bat, you were filled with guilt and you admitted your true age, which was six. You did not want the bat to hear you lie. The bat that flew across the face of the full moon as you were whispering a wish to wake up in the morning to find that you had turned seven during your sleep. And when you saw that bat silhouetted against the moon, you felt that anything was possible. And that if anything was possible, then sure, you could wake up the next day and find that you had turned seven, but you could also wake up and find that you'd turned five. You could wake up and find that you'd become horribly combined with your own comforter, your molecules blended with the molecules of the comforter, so that you'd become a half-blanket, half-boy creature. And you only got the comforter last year, and it was brand new then, so in this new form, if you were to average out the ages of all the parts of you, you'd be even younger. So, scared, you bit your tongue to halt your whisper in mid-wish and you went home to bed, resigned to waking up in the morning as a mere six-year-old. The bat that dangled over your head, upside down and silent, as you read with horror a book about the solar system wherein you learned that if you were to travel to a distant planet, it would take many times longer for you to turn seven due to the vastly increased distance that planet would have to travel to make a complete circuit around the sun. But, reading on, you realize that if you were to travel to Venus, or better yet, Mercury, their shorter orbits would bring your seventh birthday much faster. Leaping to your feet and disturbing the bat's sleep, you ran home to beg your father to take you to Mercury on an immediate vacation. Your father then explained the impossibility of your request, but added, perhaps unnecessarily, that he wouldn't do it even if it was not only possible, but easy. The bat that you saw hiding atop one of the blades on the ceiling fan in your bedroom on the night before you were to celebrate your true seventh birthday. The bat that you saw hovering and perhaps even glowing faintly in the corner of your hospital room, visible as a shadow beyond the heads of the doctors and nurses, bending wide-eyed over your prostrate body. How long, you croaked. The medical professionals looked at one another. You've been in a coma, the shortest nurse finally said, for one year and one day. Yesterday was your eighth birthday. But what about seven, you asked? I never got to be seven. I'm sorry, one of the doctors said, but seven is gone. You looked to the bat. You'd seen this bat before, but you didn't know it then. But, said another nurse, a male nurse, there is something else. While you were asleep, your body combined with the bedsheets, the molecules they mingled. We've never seen anything like it before. You kept your eyes on the bat, only on the bat. One more thing, said another doctor, a woman with silken hair. 
Your brain is this thing where it tricks your eyes into seeing bats where there are none in moments of emotional distress. And also, your parents moved to Mercury without you, the planet. But you didn't listen to her. You just looked at the bat even harder, harder than you'd ever looked at anything in your life. And the doctors and nurses melted away. The hospital room faded. The bed sheets dissolved out of your body. The sun rose up from the west and set in the east, and you were seven. Hold on a second. Harps, golden streets, halos, white robes, lambs and lions getting along, angelic choirs. Heck, we've all got wings. But if this is the battery, where are all the bats? Have any of us seen one bat since we've been here? No? Then this isn't a battery. We were deceived. If this isn't the battery, then we're out of here. We're coming back to life. Try and stop us. The force of our righteous indignation reveals the deception perpetrated upon us. The illusion falters and we wake up in the dirt pit where our bodies have been dumped. We were not in the battery, but we believed we were so thoroughly that for a few minutes, even in the presence of nary a bat, we were in the battery, in our hearts. But we figured it out, and although this death pit may not be the battery either, we are alive and we will find the battery again. We leave the battery. We step into the building and we're immediately engulfed by pigeons. There are pigeons everywhere, thousands of pigeons flying around, perched on every surface, strutting on the floor, landing on our heads and shoulders, feathers raining down, droppings raining down. There are paintings of pigeons on the walls and ceiling, whole murals featuring nothing but pigeons. We're overwhelmed with pigeons. It's hard to imagine a more pigeony place than this one. But in the very back of the room... In a small desk, in the bottom drawer, locked away, is another creature, not even alive, but rather taxidermied and mounted under glass, a tiny creature of flawless form and nocturnal habits, hidden away from the frightful pigeonness of this place. But still, even hidden away, even in death, even in its diminutive size, its influence is undeniable. We have entered the Battery. It's tempting to imagine a perfect world populated by nothing but bats. But if there were only bats, how would anyone be aware of the superiority of bats to all other animals? There would be nothing for the bats to shine in comparison to, thereby rendering the world imperfect. Let me make you a counterproposal. Imagine a world populated by nothing but bats and one dopey, clumsy red panda. Perfecto! Oh wait, no, what I've actually written there is perfection. Or imagine this world, a world populated by nothing but bats, but they have magazines full of pictures and descriptions of other kinds of animals, and it's clear from these pictures and descriptions that, if these other animals did exist, bats would be superior to them. And these magazines are free to any bat who wants to read them, not just available to the wealthiest bats or the bats of the most respected species. This world populated entirely by bats is immune to those kinds of social issues. All the bats understand that as long as the magazines are available to every bat in equal measure, then there will never be a single war. In fact, the bats don't even have a word for war. If they want to talk about war, they have to use a short, single-syllable word that means battle, but they precede that word with an adjective that means very large. Or imagine a world populated by nothing but bats, but... 
The moon is populated by nothing but skunks. But the bats and the skunks have no knowledge of each other because neither ever bothers with space travel. I don't think skunks are even capable of developing a space program. And while bats certainly are capable of developing a space program, I just can't imagine a situation in which they ever would, not even in my wildest fantasies. My brain just rejects it outright, like when someone says round square, or square circle, or two-dimensional cube, or Canadian pizza, or stop talking about bats. Or imagine a world populated by everything except bats and God destroys it like Sodom and Gomorrah. Or try imagining this world on for size. It's a world populated entirely by bats, but there are also insects for them to eat. Because I just remember that insects are animals and bats love to eat insects. And it was kind of a serious oversight for me to leave them out of most... Well, okay, all of the previously imagined worlds, but I'm rectifying that now, and this world populated entirely by bats also has insects for them to eat, as will all of the remaining worlds I will be describing over the course of the remainder of this segment. Even if I neglect to mention the insects, please just assume that they are there. I would never want to deny the bats their primary source of sustenance and, let's face it, pleasure, and I hope they know me well enough to know that. Anyway, with that little embarrassment behind us, try imagining a world populated entirely by bats. But there's something interfering with their echolocation. What could it be? Well, a particularly adventurous bat and her handsome assistant bat. Search out the source of the interference and find that it's a mysterious and ancient pyramid submerged in the ocean. No one knows who built the pyramid or how they could have done it using only their bat hands and maybe a few primitive bat tools. Also, how did they do it underwater? Well, I've speculated myself into a corner, and I really don't think there's a way to resolve this without an egregious deus ex machina, so please stop imagining this particular world now. Oh, but before you stop imagining it, imagine that there are bugs in this world for the bats to hunt and eat. Imagine a world populated entirely by bats, but really consider it this time. Consider the consequences. Consider the pros and cons. Think about the specific ways in which life on this world would be different from ours. Think about how different the economy would be, the infrastructure, the entertainment. I mean, think of how different the comics pages and the newspapers would be in a world populated entirely by bats. Have you ever really considered that? Don't just give it a few cursory thoughts and then move on with your mundane life. Think, man, think about a world populated entirely by bats. Think about how different something simple like a can opener would be. Heck, forget the can opener. Think about how different the can would be. Heck, forget the can. Think about how different thinking would be. Now imagine a world populated entirely by bats. Except also time travel is commonplace and everyone is immortal and the bats all communicate telepathically and they wear magical pendants that grant them wishes. But again, no space program. I'm sorry, but that's just a bridge too far. And finally, imagine a world populated by nothing but bats. But imagine that this world was once our world. That it once had people and dogs and whales and whale sharks and sharks and every other species that we know of. But something happened. We didn't respect the bats enough. And eventually, after centuries of insufficient respect, the bats simply eradicated us. Eradicated us all, every species of animal other than bats. And it was so easy for them. They didn't even break a sweat. They just decided to extinguish us, and that was all it took. Everything else was just mopping up. And do the bats miss us? Any of us? 
Sure, they didn't want to resort to eradicating us, but at a certain point, you can't just look the other way when you're being shown insufficient respect. You have to act. And they acted. Just kidding, this is all just make-believe, but still, it's food for thought. It's not that we don't notice all the pigeons. We do. Trust us, we do. It's just that as much as the pigeons certainly can touch our physical forms, they cannot come close to touching the immaterial parts of ourselves that we keep hidden away inside of us, like a taxidermy bat in a desk in a room full of pigeons. Are we saying that the taxidermy bat here in the battery is a metaphor for our souls? Man, I hope not. We'd better not be saying that. If we are saying that, then I propose we retract it immediately. Or, you know what? Maybe it would just be better if we leave the battery. We take a wrong turn and walk into the laboratory of a scientist who, while not mad, is nonetheless carelessly pointing his new shrink ray right at the door, and when we walk through the door, it startles him into triggering the shrink ray. We all receive a direct hit from the shrink ray. The shrink ray works perfectly, which is further proof that the scientist isn't actually mad. In reality, mad scientists rarely make functional rays of any kind. Most mad scientists die in the very early stages of ray testing, usually as a direct result of their madness, combined with proximity to many life-threatening and hazardous materials. Once shrunken, we scramble as a group toward the nearest potted plant for cover. We estimate that we're about one inch tall, although one of us is twice as tall as the rest of us, which further calls into question the validity of science. But while we're behind the plant, we notice that someone broke a chunk of plastic out of the pot near the floor, and then dug a cave into the dirt. Shrugging as one, we go into the cave, and immediately we sense them. They're tiny presences, although they feel regular size to us, because we, our very selves, are tiny. We got shrunk, if you'll recall. We have entered the battery. In the early 90s, there was a band called Thief and the Thieves. They were famous for having four members at the same time. One of them was named Jeff. One of them was named Kathik, with a K at the end. One of them was named Drummer, he played bass, and the other one was named Orville, and he was the one who usually tried to talk the rest of the band into adding a fifth member, so that the number of people in the band would stop overshadowing their music. Well, in 1993, they released a five-song EP called We Have Four Members, which was a deceptive title because the EP was actually a concept record all about bats. Track one is called Bat Fueler, and it rocks. It's about a man who pumps gas for bats. They pull up in their giant immaculate old cars and he hands them a long pointer stick. And then they use that pointer stick to point either to a sign that says fill her up or a sign that says if the bat is pointing at this sign, he or she may be illiterate, in which case you should just fill up their vehicle with gasoline anyway. But in all his years as a bat fueler, the bat fueler has never seen any bats actually pay for the gas once he's pumped it into their cars. So who's footing the bill? Thief and the Thieves leave that question unanswered in favor of howling that question over and over as the song fades out. Track two is called Bat Out Of... Many people who looked at the track listing of the album assumed that the band was being coy about using the word hell, but it turned out that the full title of the song was actually Bat Out of Schadenfreude, and the band, unsure of how to spell Schadenfreude, had intended to look it up later before submitting the official track list, but then they forgot because they were all forgetful, all four of them. Anyway, Bat Out of 
dot, 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 also rocks. It's about a bat who can no longer derive pleasure from the misfortune of others because he overdosed on schadenfreude and blew out the schadenfreude receptors in his brain when an anti-bat activist got bitten by another anti-bat activist who happened to be rabid. Track three is called Bats Last. Now, while this song does rock, you could be forgiven for being a little tentative about admitting that it rocks based on that title. But don't worry, it's not saying that bats should be the last to receive spots on lifeboats if the ships on which their passengers happen to be sinking. It's saying that bats last, like last for a long time. Bats endure would have been a clearer name, but if Thief and the Thieves were about one thing, it was courting controversy. Well, no, if they were about one thing, it was about having four members at the same time, but if one were to add a second thing to the list of things they were about, that second thing would probably be courting controversy. Anyway, this song does make the dubious claim that the reason that bats last so long is that they have over 8,000 layers of skin, a claim that I've never seen verified by anyone, including every idiot I know. Track 4 is called Fangs for My Heart, and it starts off like a soothing ballad, but before you know it, it's rocking. This song is about how there's no such thing as a cupid who shoots you in the heart with arrows to make you fall in love. What this song counters with is that there is a cupid who sends a special red bat to bite you in the heart with its fangs to make you fall in love. The song has an instrumental bridge with a huge guitar solo, and if you listen carefully during it, you can hear Kathik in the background asking if anyone else hears a guitar, a question which sounds disconcertingly sincere since she's almost certainly in the same room as the guitar while the solo is being played thereupon. Track 5 is called Batty Bout You, and the U is spelled just like it sounds. You. Just you. Wow, this is not easy to explain in a strictly auditory medium. Alright, imagine the word you. Now, just imagine it being spelled as you. I feel like I'm not explaining this well. You know how the word you is usually spelled like in a formal document or a novel or a wedding invitation or what have you? Okay, this is not spelled exactly like that. It's just spelled partially like that. Urgh, I just wish there was a way... Oh, I know. I'll tweet the spelling right now. Then, when you hear this, you can go to my Twitter account, which is at HugePop, and you can look at the tweet from 2.34 a.m. Central Time on June 29th. Are you looking at it? That's how Thief and the Thieves spells the word you in the title of the song, Batty Bout You. We love the tiny bats in the tiny cave in the back of the potted plant, but we can't stay tiny forever. We need to get unshrunken before the sane but amoral scientist moves on from his shrink ray experiments and forgets how to reverse the process. We don't want to spend the rest of our lives as shrunken versions of ourselves, but it is nice to know that wherever we are, no matter the environment, no matter the setting, there's always a chance that just behind that dresser, just behind that curtain, just behind that pile of rags, there might be a tiny cave full of tiny bats. We don't know about you, but we find that comforting. Now let's go find a way to get ourselves back to normal size. Oh, we know. Let's try stacking on each other's shoulders and then shooting the shrink ray into a mirror. We leave the battery. <laughs>